Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell is ending his tenure as the longest-serving party leader in Senate history. The 82-year-old will step down as leader in November. He was first elected to the chamber 40 years ago. Today is Wednesday, February 28th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, why both parties in Congress have reason to be skeptical of House Speaker Mike Johnson's ability to help avert a partial government shutdown that looms at the end of this week. And millions of people have been tracking one woman's saga on TikTok about her troubled relationship. This idea that you can love someone who loves you back, but they do not have your best interests at heart. And what does it look like to live in that? The viral success of who the F did I marry? Coming up, it's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The U.S. House is back from recess to again address the threat of a partial government shutdown. Speaker Mike Johnson told Capitol Hill reporters that he'll make decisions this afternoon about funding federal agencies. The first of two deadlines to approve funding is this Friday. In the Senate, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer describes what's at stake. In a shutdown, costs would go up, safety would go down, and the American people would pay the price. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell says he will step down as the Republican leader in November. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports that will mark the end of McConnell's tenure as the longest-serving Senate leader from either party. Senator McConnell said his decision to conclude his time as leader after the election comes after a tough year for him and his family. He's struggled with his own health issues. He's frozen publicly twice and suffered a concussion from a fall last year. He recently turned 82 and says this was the day he had clarity about what he called the sunset of his work. One of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. McConnell will remain in the Senate to serve out the rest of his term, which ends in 2026. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News, the Capitol. President Biden's undergone a routine checkup. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says the president's annual physical exam at Walter Reed Medical Center today did not include a cognitive test because, she says, the president's doctor concluded that he did not need one. Many voters have raised concerns about the 81-year-old's memory and recall abilities as he seeks four more years in office. Similar concerns have also been raised about former President Donald Trump's candidacy at the age of 77. Trouble plane maker Boeing has 90 days now to come up with a plan to fix its quality control problems. NPR's Joel Rose reports regulators at the Federal Aviation Administration announced that deadline today. FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker says Boeing must commit to, quote, real and profound improvements, unquote, and pledged that regulators would hold the company's leaders accountable. The 90-day deadline was announced after Whitaker met Tuesday with Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun and other top company officials at FAA headquarters in Washington. The agency is completing an audit of assembly lines at Boeing's factory near Seattle, where the company builds its 737 MAX jets. Quality control problems at Boeing and its suppliers came to light after a fuselage panel blew off a 737 MAX 9 jet in midair last month. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. U.S. stocks have ended the day lower with the Dow Jones Industrial Average closing down 23 points to end the day at 38,949. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. Gabrielle Wolohojin will soon be the newest member of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. The governor's council approved her nomination today by a 6-1 to margin. The lone no vote came from Councilmember Tara Jacobs, who said her reservations had nothing to do with the nominee's judicial qualifications. She calls Wolohojin an insider nominee who has breathed, quote, rarefied air her whole life. My perception from that is... Um She intellectualizes the marginalized community's struggle um, in a way that it feels very much a bubble of privilege um, and detached from the struggle itself. Governor Maura Healey has been criticized for picking Wolohojin because the two once had a long-term romantic relationship. Healey called Wolohojin the most qualified person for the job. Blue Hill Avenue in Boston is getting a major makeover. Mayor Michelle Wu today announced a $44 million plan to redesign the busy corridor. As WBR's and Injur and Wameka reports, the goal is to make the road safer for pedestrians, drivers, and bus riders. The redesign's key feature will be a dedicated bus lane in the center of Blue Hill Ave. It will run three miles from Mattapan Square to Grove Hall. Mayor Wu says more than 37,000 bus riders use this corridor every weekday. We know it will make a huge impact to predictability and having more streamlined, efficient commutes for everyone who's trying to get around on this corridor and safer ones for all road users as well. The city will also repair the roadway, plant trees, and install new amenities like benches, bike parking, and public art. Some street work will begin this spring, but the bulk of construction won't happen until 2026, as the city still needs to finalize the design. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. U.S. Senator Ed Markey is calling on the Federal Trade Commission to investigate how car manufacturers use data collected by their vehicles. Markey calls today's cars smartphones on wheels. He says manufacturers get huge troves of valuable information on drivers and passengers from real-time locations to biometric information. Markey says companies can easily monetize the data by selling the customer's personal information. 56 degrees now in the Boston area. Pretty strong winds continuing this afternoon and overnight tonight. We could have rain tonight, maybe a few snow flurries after midnight, down around 28 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine early, then increasing clouds through the day. Windy and cooler tomorrow, about 35 degrees for a high. Again, 56 degrees in Boston at 4.07. Support for NPR comes from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macbound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell announced today he will step down from his position in November. We'll have more on his decision and his legacy later in the program. First, March 1st is just hours away, and it's the first of two deadlines for a partial government shutdown. The second is March 8th. Lawmakers agreed on those dates in January when the country was, sound familiar, on the verge of another government shutdown. Since then, conditions for making a political deal have only gotten worse. The Republican majority in the House has shrunk to just two votes. And the path forward depends on Speaker of the House Mike Johnson, Republican of Louisiana. NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel has been following these talks and he's here in the studio. Hey, Eric. Hey there. How have the negotiations gone so far? I mean, I think we can almost talk at this point as though they do have a short-term plan together on the funding bills, at least for the agencies that are going to run out on Friday. 
I think we'll see something to that effect soon enough, right? Because that's how these deadlines go. They'd still need to pass that hypothetical deal. And of course, I'm not a fortune teller, but I also don't expect a government shutdown on Friday, right? They'll cobble votes together and keep working on things for another short-term extension or maybe even these quote-unquote full-year fiscal bills, even though that would be to just September of this year. Because I don't want to miss the forest for the trees here, right? They were supposed to pass these full-year spending authorizations for the federal government in September. You and I are sitting here talking. It's February 28th. So in that way, right, negotiations over the spending bills aren't going great. No, but I do appreciate you're putting a positive spin on this. Remind us of what the fiscal parameters are that Speaker Johnson has to consider here. So right now, the U.S. government is still operating under budget choices that were made by a whole nother Congress, right? Just after the 2022 midterm elections, when Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, was still in charge, the new Congress hadn't taken office. She was serving as Speaker of the House. The current Congress has been extending that funding in small increments ever since. Johnson says he wants to stop these so-called stopgap measures and pass the full-year bills. But it's been impossible so far to get House Republicans and the rest of Congress on the same page about what should be in those bills. And that's kind of where we are now. And just to put a fine point on it, funding the government is a core job of Congress. It's the power of the purse. And there are some ways they haven't really done it in the way it's designed to work since 1996, 1997. And I think there are reasons now, and we can get more into this, that the problem is worse than it's ever been. Yeah, well, let's get into one of those reasons. Johnson, who has not spent long as Speaker of the House, has spent most of that time trying to manage the far right of his own party, who generally don't support any kind of spending deal that Democrats could agree to. How has that dynamic created this moment we're in now? It's really important. There's no way around it. And while Johnson might be trying to manage them, he's really not tried to appease them so far, right? In fact, he's sort of gone around them. He's now pushed through two short-term funding extensions against their wishes, despite promising when he was running for speaker that he was done with short-term bills. But we could see another pass this week. He's advanced a bipartisan tax deal. For the most part, they did not back that. And in this context, deferring to his far-right members would be insisting that the big conservancy insisting on big conservative policy writers on guns or abortion that President Biden would never sign and maybe letting the government shut down. And there's just no sign that he's inclined to let that happen. So he's not insisting on those conservative priorities right now. I mean, I suspect any conservative wins we do see in a plan will be much smaller than the hardliners want to see. These big ones on abortion or guns, say, are described as poison pills by Democrats, things they just can't stomach. Hmm. And because Biden is in charge of the White House and Democrats control the Senate, they're not going to go through. But the issue for Johnson is that these anti-compromise folks make up somewhere between a third and a half of his majority, depending on what the exact issue is. And they have some fundamentally different incentives. Part of Johnson's job as speaker is to govern and make Republicans look electable and responsible and competent. But the anti-compromise folks represent districts that have been drawn to be so safe that compromise could doom them when they have to compete in the party primaries that are so rigorously partisan because of, you know, the way these districts are. Yeah. So if you look at this through the eyes of those hardliners, how are the considerations different? Well, their job is to hold the line and incite excite their very engaged Republican primary voters. Remember, most of Congress is made up of these safe seats where the party primary is the vote that matters, not the general election. There are just 20 or 30 seats that are totally competitive or designed to be competitive in the general election between the parties. These hardliners are just responding to the incentives that they have. Lots of House speakers have had to navigate a shutdown fight, but none of them have had as little experience as Johnson. Do you see that having an impact on his ability to deliver a deal? 
weirdly, I don't. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't think this is entirely an experience problem. I don't think his leadership skills really have much to do with the core issue here, right? He's just got a plain old problem. There's a philosophical divide that I'm not sure who can bridge it. We might see these deals come together eventually, but we're already late, right? And I also just wouldn't say, to your point, though, He's new, right? He's not a master tactician in the same way we've seen from Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell. Outgoing Senate Republican leader. now. Although in his short time as Speaker, Johnson has had some pretty public failures, like the first impeachment vote against Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas failed. The Israel solo aid package didn't go through. Are those things affecting his ability to bring members along? Right. I mean, those bills failed back to back on the same night, right? And the second, the Mayorkas impeachment because of Republican opposition. It wasn't a shining moment for the new speaker, and he's been a little wishy-washy when coming to final decisions. But ultimately, he was, of course, able to impeach DHS Secretary Mayorkas the following week. You know, one of Johnson's predecessors was Democrat Nancy Pelosi of California, and she avoided a shutdown in 2022 by keeping her party together, even though there were intense dissents and fractures within that party. Does Johnson have the same level of credibility as Pelosi? Can he hold his party together? I mean, there is no question, right? Pelosi was known for her ability to keep the whole party together on tough votes. That's absolutely true. We saw it way back during the Affordable Care Act fight. But partisan Democrats also have a different base to win over, right? Intransigence isn't the same winning message all the time that it is for some of these partisan Republicans. I think the predecessor who actually has the most to teach us about this moment is Kevin McCarthy, right? He's Johnson's immediate predecessor, Republican from California. And the former speaker was the one who essentially changed the rules last January to empower this anti-compromise flank in a way that they weren't before. They can now block key procedural steps because of their positions on the Rules Committee and even fire the speaker if they disagreed with just a couple of members. And in this tiny majority, that's a big deal. That came home to roost for McCarthy when they ousted him in the fall. Okay, we started by talking about how little time is left, and you said you're not a fortune teller. I want to end by asking if you're a better. What do you think is going to happen? I am a better, and here's the bet I'll take. I think they're going to move the deadlines a couple weeks to get a broader deal through. That's my guess. There are two days to pass something and avoid a partial shutdown. That's not a lot of time, but it's also not impossible. But I want to say, again, even if they get an agreement, even on funding for the rest of the fiscal year, this isn't a sign that things are working well. The U.S. is the richest country in the world. It's styled by its leaders as a shining city on a hill. And here we are where the whole federal government can't long-term plan because its agencies don't know how much money they'll have. This is a structural problem that got us here, and I just don't see that going anywhere. NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel, thanks. Thank you. For the past two winters, Southern California has gotten more than average rainfall in Los Angeles County that has led to unprecedented instability in an area known for landslides. There's been a tenfold increase in the number of feet the land has shifted compared with the year before. Mudslides are covering roads, buckling pavement, buckling trails, and destabilizing homes and other structures. As LAist's Yusra Farzan reports, that means one historic chapel is at risk of closing its doors for good. In the quiet town of Rancho Palos Verdes, south of LA, roads wind along hillsides with a beautiful view of the Pacific Ocean. On one of them, you'll find the Wayfarer's Chapel. A geometric masterpiece of glass panels and wooden beams surrounded by redwood trees. But the ground around the chapel is getting more and more unstable. You'll notice uh, in the ground, cracks everywhere, and they basically run from uh, the 
front of the chapel all the way back. That's Reverend Dan Burchett, the executive director of the 73-year-old chapel. Since the 1950s, the land here has been somewhat in motion as part of an active landslide complex. But due to the excessive rainfall these past two winters, says Burchett, it's gotten a lot worse. Fissures in the ground are around an arm deep. Sidewalks bulge up. Doors have shifted from their frames. And several panes of the glass walls are starting to crack and separate. Uh, you see a glass broken on the left above the altar, on the right above the altar. Uh, this one has a crack all the way across it. This chapel is an icon in Southern California. It was recently designated a National Historic Landmark. Built in the 1950s, it's a prime example of organic architecture, which was pioneered by Frank Lloyd Wright. His son, Lloyd Wright, was the one who actually designed the chapel. The idea behind organic architecture is that the building should be in harmony with its environment. Adrian Scott Fine, president of the Los Angeles Conservancy, says the glass walls of the Wayfarer's Chapel gives the illusion of being outside. It's almost this idea of it just kind of sprouted there on its own, but it's very clearly um, something that was intentional, designed, and created. Since mid-February, however, the chapel has been closed because of the damage. That means people can't come to appreciate its architectural beauty. And also, no Sunday services, baptisms, or weddings. Pretty much my whole adult life, I always pictured getting married there. Naomi White booked the chapel for her wedding in July. Having grown up just 15 minutes away, she had her heart set on walking down the aisle at Wayfarer's. She says it's memorialized so many events in the community. It's special to so many people. And so I'm, you know, I'm not certain it can be saved, but I, I'm optimistic that like all of us are so invested personally in this monument. I mean, it really is a landmark. It really is such a, a major part of the city. So I'm hoping that with the right scientific resources and with the right like emotional, financial support, hopefully it can be saved. Church officials are currently fundraising to repair the grounds. After that, they say they'll turn to restoring the chapel itself. There's still no timeline set for its reopening. For NPR News, I'm Yusra Farzan in Rancho Palos Verdes. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Still to come on WBUR, Hunter Biden testified before a panel of House lawmakers for several hours today as part of a Republican-led impeachment probe of his father, President Joe Biden. WBUR supporters include Celebrity Series of Boston with Orchestre de Paris, including Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto, March 17th at Symphony Hall, CelebritySeries.org and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts. Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month. New benefits for 2024. BlueCrossMA.com slash go. The Dow dipped for a third straight day today, although not by much, less than a tenth of a percent. S&P gave up almost two-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq lost more than a half percent. The Walpole e-commerce firm Thrasio has filed for bankruptcy. The company said it ran up debt as it bought third-party sellers on Amazon, just as online shopping cooled. In its bankruptcy filing today, Thrasio said it will continue to operate as usual during the bankruptcy process. This is WBUR. The forecast is ahead. WBUR supporters include the Museum of Science with the new exhibit, Changing Landscapes, showing how innovation helps us adapt to a changing climate. Now through May 5th, mos.org. And MathWorks, 
creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. Pretty blowy out there today. We've got a wind advisory in effect until 7 tomorrow morning. Some gusts could reach between 35 and 50 miles an hour. Snow showers mixed with rain in the wee hours of tomorrow, then increasing clouds through the day. Still windy with temperatures in the mid-30s. 56 now in Boston at 421. Support for NPR comes from the station and from JATASA, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. JATASA is committed to serving nonprofits who make the world a better place. J-I-T-A-S-A dot com. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell announced on the Senate floor today that he will step down as Republican leader this November. One of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. McConnell is the longest-serving Senate leader in history. He turned 82 just last week. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis is here to talk about his legacy and what comes next. Hey, Sue. Hey, Ari. Any sense of why McConnell chose this moment to announce he'd step down? You know, it's news, but it doesn't really come as a surprise. If you recall, at the beginning of this Congress, 10 Republicans voted against Mitch McConnell continuing to serve as leader, and they have since continued to publicly criticize him and call for new leadership. He's also had health issues dating back to last spring. It had times have kept him away from the Senate and raised a lot of questions about how much longer he could do this job. And now you have Donald Trump poised to be the likely nominee for the party again. And this is a presidential candidate that Mitch McConnell has been at odds with at many times in the past. McConnell said today he has many faults, but not understanding politics isn't one of them. One point of clarification, he's going to step down as leader in November after the election. But he did indicate he intends to keep serving out his term, which runs through 2026. Hmm. He became leader in 2007 and has been a towering figure in American politics since then. It's, It's hard to sum up his legacy, but... What do you think will most define his time as leader? McConnell himself has talked about this, and he said he believes it'll be his role in shaping the courts, not just getting conservative justices on lower courts, but specifically that 2016 decision to block Merrick Garland's nomination by President Obama to the Supreme Court. That decision ultimately led to President Trump's ability to appoint three conservative justices and tilt the court towards conservatives. He has called that the single most important thing he did in office. You can draw a straight line from that decision to outcomes like the 2022 Supreme Court decision that threw out Roe v. Wade. And part of that legacy is also becoming is being someone who is seen as driving up the partisan divisions in the Senate. On the left, he's become one of the great boogeymen of American politics, not just for his approach to the courts, but also his long running opposition to any laws that would restrict money in politics. Uh, McConnell has always sort of relished being this boogeyman on the left, and he nodded to that today. I still have enough gas in my tank to thoroughly disappoint my critics. And I intend to do so with all the enthusiasm with which they become accustomed. So as he acknowledges there, he is no friend to the left. But in the last few years, he's also become a target of many on the right, specifically Trump and his supporters. Tell us about that. Sure. I mean, McConnell's not MAGA and he never will be. He personally doesn't like Donald Trump. Donald Trump clearly doesn't like him. 
Uh, over the years, he and Donald Trump have found themselves on the opposite sides of many Senate primary races in which McConnell has represented sort of the establishment wing and the Trump wing of the party. Many of the Trump wing candidates have lost and, and cost the Senate the majority time and time again. McConnell's brand of conservatism, frankly, is also on the decline. You know, he noted today that he's someone who got married on purpose on Ronald Reagan's birthday. He defines himself by that sort of Reagan era principles, and he loudly rejects a lot of the isolationist politics of the new right. In his speech today, he doubled down on that, saying American global leadership is essential for national security. And likely one of the big last tests for him as leader is whether Congress is going to be able to get a foreign aid package for Ukraine signed into law over objections about half of his own party. Well, he talked about next steps a bit, saying Republicans will have to elect a new leader after November's elections. Who's likely to run to succeed him? Uh, most likely it's going to be someone named John, is the joke <laughs> you hear about on Capitol Hill a lot. Uh, that would be John Thune of South Dakota, John Cornyn of Texas, and John Barrasso of Wyoming, all senators who have, are either currently serving in leadership or have in the past. If one or more, if more than one of them decides to run, it could be the first time there's a competitive Senate leadership election since the early 90s, and that one was on the Democratic side. Senate leadership elections usually happen by acclamation without much of a fight, but now looking at what could be a possible nine-month campaign for leader. But so much of this is going to depend on the election outcome. Does Donald Trump win? Does Donald Trump lose? Do Senate Republicans take the majority as they're projected to do, or do they not hold on to it? And the Trump factor here is significant. Who would he support? Who would he oppose for Senate leader could also weigh heavily. It's really unusual for a presidential candidate or a president to weigh in on congressional leadership elections. But Trump has done it time and time again. And we saw just last year when the speakership was vacated, he could play a really critical role in determining who leads the party, particularly if he wins the White House. That is NPR political correspondent Susan Davis on the exit of Mitch McConnell as the leader of Republicans in the Senate. Thanks, Sue. You're welcome. To a non-Washington story now, humpback whales have made a remarkable comeback. After being hunted close to extinction, their numbers have rebounded in the Pacific Ocean. But a new study finds the whales are now facing a different threat. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk reports. For 30 years, Ted Cheeseman worked as a naturalist, guiding trips on boats around Antarctica. That meant looking for whales, which wasn't easy in the early 1990s. We saw very, very, very few whales. And in the 2000s, we started seeing more. 2010s, we started seeing quite a few whales. The whales were slowly recovering from industrial whaling, which lasted into the 1960s. I'm photographing this whales, seeing like, hey, you know, I'm essentially collecting data that could be valuable to science. Photos are key for scientists to identify and count whales. The tails of humpbacks each have their own unique pattern. And so you can look at them like we look at each other and recognize each other's faces. Whale scientists typically do that photo by photo, matching the tails in a painstaking process. But Cheeseman figured that artificial intelligence could do that more quickly. He started Happy Whale and pulled together around 200,000 images of humpback whales. Many were from scientists, but others were from whale watching groups, since anyone can upload a photo to find the exact whale they're looking at. In the North Pacific, we have identified almost every living whale. We were just doing this as a study of the population. We didn't expect to see a major impact of climate. But that's what he and colleagues found for one group of whales. Some humpbacks feed in Alaska in the summer and then spend winters in Hawaii. That group has declined 34% since 2013, a big setback. 
It happened when a marine heat wave hit, known as the blob. This very large body of warm water sat at the surface, stretching from Alaska to the coast of California. The warm water changed the entire food web, including the food humpbacks rely on. Marine heat waves are expected to get worse as the climate gets hotter. John Kalambakides is a whale biologist at Cascadia Research and a co-author on the study with Cheeseman. I think the scary part of some of the changes we've seen in ocean conditions is the speed at which they're occurring. And that would put kind of long-lived, slow-reproducing species like humpback whales and other large whales as more vulnerable. Kalambakiti says the reason they could spot this decline is because humpbacks have recovered so well. For other whales, it's harder to see the impacts. I think it is important to think about what consequences could that be happening to these rare species where it's really hard to get data. But he's hopeful that new image recognition technology will help marine biologists spot these impacts faster in all whale species, especially given how fast the climate keeps changing. Lauren Summer, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 10 minutes on WBUR, film critic Bob Mandela reviews Dune Part 2, which takes the sweeping visuals from Part 1 to a whole new level. Damp, windy, and warm into the nighttime could have some rain, maybe snow showers after midnight, 28 for a low overnight. The high winds keep coming tonight and tomorrow, with some gusts close to 50 miles an hour. And tomorrow, clouds should collect through the day, with highs only reaching about 35 degrees tops. 56 degrees now at 430. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading healthcare systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into all things considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The longest-serving Senate leader in U.S. history plans to step down from his post in November. Kentucky Republican Mitch McConnell has led the Senate for 17 years, but says he still plans to serve out his Senate term, which ends in January 2027. NPR's Eric McDaniel has more on today's announcement from the 82-year-old lawmaker. He said after a loss in the family recently, he started to think how he'd like to spend the rest of his life. He said it was a part of the grieving process to do that self-reflection. He said, you know, he was surprised to serve as long as he has. He'll serve through the next uh, Republican leadership election internally in November. And then the remainder of his term as a rank and file member through 2026. McConnell played a critical role in shaping the judiciary, most notably blocking President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to serve on the Supreme Court. 
That paved the way for President Trump to reshape the court, appointing a total of three conservative justices. But McConnell's grip on power has weakened in recent years as he found himself at odds with Trump. The U.S. and several other countries have conducted flyover missions over Gaza, airdropping food and medical supplies. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports nearly five months into the Israeli-Hamas war, Gaza's population is facing hunger and a shortage of supplies. An NPR producer in Gaza filmed a large jet in the sky and aid parcels gliding down with billowing parachutes. Israel's army says 160 aid parcels of food and medical supplies were airdropped along the coastline in southern Gaza over the last couple days. Planes from the U.S., France, Jordan, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates did the airdrops. Jordan's King Abdullah flew in one air mission. Fuel supplies were airdropped for a Jordanian field hospital in Gaza. There's been a dip in the amount of aid reaching Gaza in recent weeks. Israel says it's not blocking aid, and aid trucks have finally reached northern Gaza, where there's a severe shortage of food. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Boston City Council today honored students from the John D. O'Brien School of Math and Science for fighting a proposed relocation of their school. Mayor Wu and school leaders yesterday shelved a plan to move the O'Brien from Roxbury to West Roxbury to create a new and larger school building. Parents and students said the new location was too far from the center of the city. City Councilor Julia Mejia spoke directly to those families today. It was the parents and the students that showed up and demonstrated what power really looked like. So I want to thank the mayor for acknowledging that voice and recognizing that this is what it looks like when we actually include people in the process. The city is moving forward with plans to renovate the Madison Park Technical Vocational High School, which shares a campus with the O'Brien. Congressman Jake Auchincloss is praising President Biden for his response to the war in Gaza. The president has been working to help broker a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas before Ramadan starts on March 10th. Auchincloss told WBUR's Radio Boston he believes the president has been walking a tightrope on his Middle East policy. He is resisting misguided calls from his left for a unilateral ceasefire that would do nothing for the hostages and would leave Gaza under the psychopathic control of Hamas, which has immiserated the Palestinian people. He's also resisted calls from the right to bomb Tehran and to lead to a wider conflagration in the, in the Middle East. Auchincloss adds that he's been disappointed with Israeli leader Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's leadership during the war. The state legislature's oldest member is not running for re-election. 82-year-old State Rep. Kay Khan of Newton says she's not seeking another term. She has served in the House since 1995. And Stacy Wakefield, the wife of the late Red Sox pitcher Tim Wakefield, has died. Her family says she passed away today at home, surrounded by family and friends. Stacy died just five months after her husband Tim Wakefield passed away. Stacy Wakefield had reportedly been battling pancreatic cancer. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Learn from mental health and wellness experts at Leslie University and prepare to make a difference. Learn more at leslie.edu. Got a wind advisor in effect until 7 tomorrow morning. Tonight we could have rain mixed with some snow flurries after midnight down around 28 degrees. Tomorrow maybe some sunshine early and then increasing clouds through the day. Windy and colder tomorrow, only about 35 for a high. Friday sunny, a little bit milder. Temperatures in the mid-40s. At spring training in Florida today, the Red Sox lost to the Washington Nationals 4-3. to 56 degrees in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station 
And from BritBox, where viewers can stream new seasons of British detective series including Vera, Father Brown, Death in Paradise, and more. Available at BritBox.com NPR. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Dune Part 2 is out only in theaters tomorrow. Stay tuned for a review, but now to the drama playing out on Capitol Hill. That's right. For several hours today, Hunter Biden has been testifying before a panel of House lawmakers. This is part of the Republican-led impeachment probe of his father. And that closed-door testimony is still going as we speak at a Capitol Hill office building. Members predict that Hunter Biden could testify Testify for eight hours or more. The effort makes good on Republicans' months-long effort to question him, but they have failed to prove any wrongdoing by President Biden. Well, joining me now, NPR congressional correspondent Claudia Grisales, who is there, not far outside that room where Hunter Biden is, still testifying. Hey there. Hi there. Hi. So I know you're outside. He's inside. They have these big old closed doors in between. But yes, NPR obtained his opening statement. So what did he say? Well, he really pushed back on this impeachment probe in his testimony before the Republican-led House Judiciary and Oversight Committees. He echoed some of the statements that were made by the president's brother, James Biden, in closed-door testimony to these same committees last week. And Hunter Biden said he was there to, quote, provide the committees with one uncontestable fact that should end the false premise of this inquiry, end quote. That is it he did not involve his father in any of his business dealings as a lawyer in in his investments as a board member as an artist he called the probe a quote partisan political pursuit that was built built on a house of cards and it was based on lies as told by witnesses with credibility issues as several are now facing criminal cases. Yeah. Now, Hunter Biden has said some of this before. Some of this is familiar. He's also, of course, admitted publicly to making mistakes during this time. He was struggling with addiction. Do we know if he got into that? Yes. He again admitted that he had made these mistakes in his life and that he, quote, squandered opportunities and privileges that were afforded. He also said he was responsible for that. He's making amends for it. But he also reiterated those mistakes are his own and not his father's, who has done nothing but devote his entire life to public service. He also added that the president saved his life and that what his father got in return was a barrage of, quote, hate-filled conspiracy theories that led to this, quote, sham impeachment inquiry. Are Republicans coming out? Are they giving any kind of readout, Claudia, on what they make of his testimony so far? Yes, we're hearing from them. That includes the Republican chairs of both of these committees. That's Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan and Oversight Chair James Comer. Both are upbeat. They've been able to conduct this deposition. Comer said it had been going great for them so far, but claimed Hunter Biden was making, quote, contradictory statements. This testimony in some ways is years in the making, as in they've been led by former President Trump to drill down on Hunter Biden's business dealings. And this is a watershed moment for them. So their interest is really focused on Hunter Biden's multi-million dollar deal with the Chinese energy companies, work with the Ukrainian energy firm, Burisma and other foreign business dealings. And Democrats, what are they saying? 
They're leaving the testimony room during breaks and telling reporters that there is no there there and that Hunter Biden is demolishing Republicans impeachment case against their father. But apparently we will hear more because we're expecting a public hearing now, as Comer told us, with Hunter expected to testify publicly. So that is the next step, a public hearing where we will all know what he says. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thank you for holding down the fort there on Capitol Hill. Thank you. If you've had enough of Congress, try this. A desert planet, warring civilizations, spice, and sandworms. That was the recipe for the epic sci-fi film Dune. And three years ago, it drew pandemic-weary crowds back to theaters, even though the film was simultaneously available on streaming. Well, now comes Dune Part 2, exclusively in cinemas, and critic Bob Mondello says it will more than fill the largest possible screen. As grand as the world building was in the original Dune, with desert vistas that rivaled Lawrence of Arabia and dragonfly helicopters caught in mile-high sandstorms, you quickly realize in part two that filmmaker Denis Villeneuve was still holding something back visually. It's breathtaking. At the end of two and a half hours of intergalactic politics and spirituality, he'd given us just a quick glimpse of the monsters that make life on the desert planet Arrakis so precarious, giant sandworms with open maws that can swallow a house. This time, they're central, and Paul Atreides, an interloper from the stars who disappeared when assassins destroyed his family, has been training for his first encounter with one. He cast his lot with the planet's indigenous nomads, known as Fremen, and they've shown him how to mount a worm, as if he's leaping aboard a carnivorous freight train. If he fails, says Javier Bardem Stilgar, he dies. Be simple. Be direct. Nothing fancy. Nothing fancy. Hey, I'm serious. Nothing fancy or you will shame my teaching. I won't shame you. I understand. He goes out alone on the sands, planting a mechanical thumper whose vibrations will call a worm. And soon, on the horizon, a faraway sand dune explodes into powder, and what sounds like an underground thunderstorm approaches. Not that big, mutters Stilgar, as Timothy Chalamet's Paul runs across the top of the dune with grappling hooks and leaps. For long minutes, with wind and sand lashing him and bone-rattling Dolby thudding against us, he'll struggle to right himself, and whatever doubts you had going in about the wisdom of trying to tame Frank Herbert's massive sci-fi novel for the screen will evaporate. It was always a gamble. The pandemic almost squelched the first film, and there was serious doubt whether Villeneuve would get to finish the novel's story. What if Paul Atreides were still alive? He'd left nearly all the plot for part two, an emperor's miscalculations, the romance between Paul and his Fremen protector. I will love you as long as I breathe. Played by Zendaya. You will never lose me as long as you stay who you are. The struggle between colonizers, a crafty Atreides clan, a brutal Harkonnen one, and the nomads in robes and turbans. We've been fighting the Harkonnens for decades. My family's been fighting them for centuries. We want to keep outsiders from mining the sand dunes for the spice that powers the galaxy. The parallels to Middle East oil are intended, and the filmmaker also leans hard into the novel's religious themes. Has an ancient sisterhood spent centuries pushing a messiah myth so that Paul would be greeted by the Fremen as their Maudib? We gave them something to hope for. That's not hope! Or has Paul simply hooked into the Chosen One narrative on his own? He has a sort of second sight. Possible futures all at once. And in so many futures, our enemies prevail. I do see a way. 
There is a narrow way through. He also sees fundamentalism and holy wars, genocide, colonialists, nuclear weapons, all of it linked by the filmmaker to battles on a Lord of the Rings scale. Tens of thousands of onlookers in a massive fascist arena watching a hairless, chalk-white, psychotic prince, played by Austin Butler, slash at Atreides' warriors, and swarming fighters cheering as their reluctant leader assumes the mantle he's been resisting. I am Paul Wadim Atreides, Duke of Arrakis! Frank Herbert wrote six novels set in the Dune universe. Given the nuanced, complicated, and richly cinematic way Dune Part Two handles the conclusion of this first one, it would be hard not to hope Villeneuve gets a crack at at least a couple more. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The weather is improving in the Texas panhandle, where a colossal wildfire that started Monday is still burning out of control. It has already burned close to 800 square miles. Now, the winds are lighter today. That means the fire is not expected to spread as quickly as it did yesterday, but it is still threatening towns and rural homes. Brad Burt with member station KTTZ in Lubbock is following developments. Hey there, Brad. Hey, thank you. Okay, so I gather this is now the second largest wildfire in state history. Get us up to speed. How are things today? Well, yesterday the uh, uh, weather conditions were a lot heavier. We were seeing 25 to 30 mile an hour winds consistent with 15 mile an hour gusts. But today they've calmed down significantly. There's a, a touch more humidity and it's about... 10 to 15 miles an hour regular wind speeds. Okay. Um, And certain towns are at risk if winds shift. What do we know? Yes. There's multiple fires going. There's several small towns that dot across that part of the panhandle, one of them being Pampa. is about 20,000 people. They um, are still concerned about what they're going to look like. Yeah. Where has been hardest hit so far by the fire? It's all mostly been to the uh, north and northeast of Amarillo in the northeast corner of the panhandle there. We know it has burned some homes in and around the town of Canadian. There's about 2,200 people that live there. They were forced to evacuate at least last night. As far as I know, there have not been any updates to that. There are several small towns there that are still dealing with mandatory and voluntary evacuations. For a while, it was threatening the 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 Pantex plant north of Amarillo. Pantex is, is the U.S. primary facility for assembling and dismantling nuclear weapons. Oh. So all non-essential personnel were, were evacuated around 10 o'clock last night after threats from the fire. Um, those employees have since been called back to the plant, but uh, the fire is still only about 25% contained. 25%. Well, what are authorities around there saying in terms of the progress they're making and trying to get it more contained? Amarillo Fire Departments have said that they are making progress. Obviously, the uh, the weather is helping here. Crews are coming in from all over the state to help out. Lubbock, Fort Worth, and all part of the uh, the response team that is that is uh, trying to fight this. But it's it's still a very challenging place for firefighters. It's it's very rough country. It's dry grasslands and, and rugged terrain that makes it really hard for firefighters to uh, to get around and access the fire. And so depending on which way the winds blow, 
um, it, it could really affect the ability for for firefighters to to make progress on fighting this fire. You said the weather is helping. Um, give us a little hope. What is the forecast? They're expecting cooler temperatures today, which would be really helpful. More precipitation would be extremely helpful. There are parts that are seeing predictions for rain or even light snow of there by Amarillo today and tomorrow. So uh, it's most importantly, those high winds are staying low and, uh, and, and that will really help slow the fire spread. All right. That is Brad Burt with member station KTTZ in Lubbock following developments with this wildfire that started Monday and is still burning. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Should the Boeing 737 MAX be flying? Coming up at 510 today on WBUR, the FAA gives Boeing 90 days to come up with a plan to repair its quality control issues well beyond the door plugs that blew off midair last month. Listen at WBUR or on the WBUR app. Red Sox put one in the loss column today as they came up short against the Washington Nationals 4-3 in spring training. The Bruins are off tonight. They'll be back at the Garden tomorrow to host the Vegas Golden Knights. Celtics return to action Friday. It's 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Explow, part magic, part summer enrichment program for curious kids and teens. For dates and campuses, visit explow.org summer. Scientists are cloning genetically modified pigs with organs designed to be transplanted into people. Every cell in the body of this animal has those same genetic modifications. NPR gets a first look into One Farm's operations tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Rain overnight tonight. Some snow flurries just after midnight down around 28 degrees. Pretty windy tonight and tomorrow too. Tomorrow increasing clouds through the day. Highs about 35. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Every now and then, something on the internet seems to take hold of the culture with a grip tighter than a giant squid on a sperm whale. And right now, that is happening with a 52-part epic on TikTok. It's called, more or less, Who the F Did I Marry? And it began when a woman who goes by Risa Tisa on TikTok started posting videos earlier this month on Valentine's Day. I'm going to tell the story of how I met, dated, married, and divorced a real pathological liar. The saga now has tens of millions of views. People have held watch parties. And in case you don't have eight hours to consume the whole thing, we've invited the hosts of the Slate podcast, ICYMI, in case you missed it, to explain this cultural phenomenon. Rachel Hampton and Candace Lim, thanks for being here. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having us. I'm so glad you're here because the tagline of your podcast is, we're online so you don't have to be. And I will be frank that I do not intend to watch all 52 
two videos. I don't have eight <laughs> hours to spare. So I realize this is like asking you both to sum up the Iliad in a few minutes. But can you give us like the extreme Cliff Notes version of what this saga actually is? I can. I have been practicing for this moment. Hit it, Rachel. Um, <laughs> so Risa Tisa met a man right at the beginning of March 2020. She goes on this really great date. And then Georgia shuts down because of COVID. COVID. And she decides to move this man into her house about two weeks after meeting him. He is paying for her rent. He's paying for the utilities. And Risa is sitting here like, I'm not going to say no. (laughs) He is taking her to look at houses that she can't afford. He is taking her to test drive BMWs and Audis. And like... I would say any normal person whose bills are being paid, you think this man has money. Mm-hmm. Except all of the gifts he keeps trying to give her keep falling through. I'm talking about three house deals, a BMW, a trip to London. And at some point, Risa starts thinking, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And she discovers that this man has been doing this for years i'm gonna jump he... in here and say this is all alleged this is not independently <laughs> oh, so this is <laughs> what risa tisa claims on tiktok happened and tiktok does not necessarily have the fact-checking standards of npr tell us about what the societal reaction to this has been because it's massive it's huge The first few videos in her 50-part series have between, I would say, 25 million to 16.6 million views on them. Women are in the salon watching Risa Tisa on television. I saw a comment on one of the videos where someone said, I just heard Risa Tisa playing over CarPlay in the parking lot of Kroger. (laughs) I think it's absolutely massive. (laughs) It is massive. And something else that kind of gets thrown in here is that Risa Tisa is allegedly pregnant. About a month or so into them living together, she does end up having a miscarriage. There's all these moments unto which Legion, by the way, that's what she calls him. Legion does not step up to the plate. And I think that is kind of what people are latching onto. The fact that when we talk about scamming stories right now, you know, there's financial scams. There's calling you on the phone saying, I'm Chase Bank, but you're not Chase Bank. This was a bit more of an emotional scam. Mm -hmm. Y'all keep in mind, I am pregnant. I had a decision to make. As ugly as this decision was, you're about to have a baby with this man. He's paying all the household bills. Let him get out of the lie. You're both podcasters. You know Americans love true crime stories. Yes. You know, way back when, it was serial season one, and then there was this viral Twitter thread in 2015 that was made into a movie called Zola in 2021. Unlike other long narrative sagas that have taken hold in the culture, this one's on TikTok, which is not really known for long form storytelling. You know, it's more known for short, quippy videos, funny dances, memes. Candace, is this an evolution for the platform, do you think? I think so. I think what really differentiates Risa Tisa's playlist of TikToks from like true crime documentaries on Netflix is that. With those true crime documentaries, you usually know how it ends. You can, like, Google it. Hmm. I think what Risa Tisa did, whether subconsciously or not, she kind of doled these out in little drops. She's actually very good at cliffhangers. I really have to give her up for that. There She's a great writers. storyteller. The conversation went like this. May I please speak with Barbara? This is Barbara. This is Shirley Jones. I am the wife of Legion. Silence. Then she starts laughing. And she said to me, and I quote, If you were calling me, 
then I know it's bad. Right. There are some writers in Hollywood who are not doing what she does. <laughs> and we want to see people who remind us of us. Because I think that's the crux of Risa Tisa. She could be your neighbor. She could be your friend. She could be your aunt. And yet she was bamboozled. And that's a real cautionary tale. She says she's been bamboozled. Her ex has responded, threatening legal action, trying to tell his side. And given like how intimate the story is, the potential consequences... I'm sure people are wondering why she put herself out there in this way. And one thing she said was this. I hope that there's a woman watching this and she's saying to herself, okay, it's time for me to ask some questions. What are you to make of that? I mean, watching this eight-hour saga is the experience of watching someone come to grips with trauma, basically. Mm -hmm. By the end of the eight hours, you can see the toll that this has on her. And I, we do audio. We know what speaking for eight hours actually entails. <laughs> I can't imagine that she would do that just on the slim chance that it might go viral. Right, that she'd get a movie deal out of it. Exactly. I think what this really is about is maybe the fact that like, no matter how smart you are, the way that people can creep into your life and take advantage of your kindness is actually very emotional. All of us are kind of susceptible to that romance, that idea of love. And I think that part drives home why this is so sad, realizing that the person she married is not who we thought he was. And I guess sharing that is sometimes therapeutic, understanding that you're not alone. Internet sleuths love a collective mission. Have people gone in and tried to unearth more details and fact check this and, you know, do what the Internet does so, I want to say well, but occasionally poorly? <laughs> oh, 100%. I mean, they found her ex-husband before he revealed himself. People mm. on TikTok are taking tours of these spots on no. their phones so that mm. people who have never been to Atlanta can see the Cheesecake Factory where it all went down. Whoa. It's like the Risa Tisa-verse. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know what strikes me about this is if this were a Netflix series or a podcast, there would be dramatic music behind it. And she carries mm -hmm. it even without the dramatic music. Yeah. Yes. It's incredible. Her very last video in this series, she does add a little bit of music under it. And I was kind of just like, Risa, you didn't need that. You, you don't even that, need Risa. the wrap-up music. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get some dramatic music to end this. Rachel Hampton and Candace Lim are co-hosts of Slate's podcast, In Case You Missed It. Thank you so much for telling us about this viral TikTok series, Who the F Did I Marry? It's been great talking to you. You too. This was great. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at AlignProbiotics.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From Jones Day, an integrated partnership collaboratively providing legal services for more than a century. 42 offices, five continents, serving clients as one firm worldwide. Learn more at jonesday.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR. Strong winds this afternoon and evening. A wind advisory is in effect until 7 tomorrow morning. Could have rain mixed with some snow flurries after midnight tonight, about 28 for a low. Tomorrow, some bright skies early, then increasing clouds during the day. Windy and colder tomorrow, only about 35 degrees for a high. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Lyric Stage with Thirst. There's a whole other story unraveling in the kitchen of Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's Journey into Night, imagined by playwright Ronan Noon. Two Irish immigrant women search for a place to call home in this heartfelt drama. Now through March 17th, lyricstage.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Supreme Court today puzzled over a federal regulation that outlaws bump stocks, which can be turning semi-automatic guns into weapons that fire up to 600 bullets a minute. Bump stocks can help people who have disabilities, who have problems with finger dexterity, people who have arthritis in their fingers. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up. Also, pilots who fly the Boeing 737 MAX jets say they must be careful not to leave the anti-icing system running for too long. If we leave it on um, more than five minutes, the engine could fail and come apart. That's pretty ominous. FAA regulators are giving Boeing 90 days to come up with a plan to fix its quality control issues. And the film Barbie features a Billie Eilish song that may be Oscar-worthy, but there's another song that helps drive the movie. How did the Indigo Girls make it into Barbie's world? We'll ask them coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell announced today he will step down in November. The 82-year-old Kentucky Republican, the longest-serving Senate leader in history, making the announcement on the Senate floor today. In the Times' emotional address, McConnell admitted to being out of step with current party leaders, including former President Donald Trump. I have many faults. Misunderstanding politics is not one of them. That said, I believe more strongly than ever that America's global leadership is essential to preserving the shining city on a hill that Ronald Reagan McConnell says he will stay on after stepping down as minority leader, serving out his Senate term, which ends in January of 2027. McConnell suffered a series of recent health issues, including a serious fall last year. President Biden said he was sorry to see McConnell step aside. The director of the Federal Bureau of Prisons says her agency is wrestling with a staffing crisis. The issue is contributing to a host of other problems plaguing the system, as NPR's Ryan Lucas explains. Staffing shortages contribute to a raft of problems in the nation's federal prisons, including safety issues for both inmates and employees. Testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee, Federal Bureau of Prisons Director Colette Peters made clear that addressing the staffing shortage is a top priority. Fully staffed institutions and well-trained employees save lives. Yet it is no secret that our agency is in crisis as it relates to recruitment and retention. The Justice Department's Inspector General has identified the staffing crisis as one of the main challenges facing the BOP. Peters says her agency is aggressively recruiting and using incentives to try to retain staff, but she says it is still struggling to offer competitive salaries. 
Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. President Biden spent about two and a half hours at Walter Reed Medical Center today undergoing an annual physical. The White House releasing a summary that concludes the president remains a robust 81-year-old male who remains, quote, fit to execute the duties of the presidency. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says a cognitive test was not part of the exam. Age has been an issue for both Biden and is expected challenger for the White House former President Donald Trump. The U.S. economy did not grow quite as fast at the end of last year as initially reported. More from NPR's Scott Horsley. Revised figures show the U.S. economy grew at an annual pace of 3.2 percent in the final months of 2023. That's fast, but not quite as fast as the 3.3 percent rate the government had initially reported. The downshift mostly reflects slower growth of inventories, which tell us little about the underlying economy. The new figures show consumer spending, which is the biggest driver of economic activity, was actually somewhat stronger in October. November and December than had been reported. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. On Wall Street, the Dow fell 23 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Appeals Court Judge Gabrielle Wolohogin will be the next justice of the Supreme Judicial Court. As WBR's Walter Wuthman reports, Wolohogin was confirmed by the Governor's Council earlier today after an unusually high-profile nominating process. Wolohogin is the author of 900 decisions over 16 years on the state appeals court. But her nomination was controversial. The judge was once the long-term romantic partner of Governor Maura Healey, raising questions about favoritism and whether she'd recuse herself from cases involving the administration. Governor's Council member Joseph Ferreira said Wolohogin's qualifications outweighed those concerns. I judge her on her own merits, and um, whatever relationship she had with whomever is actually irrelevant for this position. And uh, I'm proud to vote for her today. In the end, the governor's council overwhelmingly approved Wolohogin, with only one council member voting no. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Massachusetts House leaders say they're open to changing the way the state manages its emergency shelter system, but after a meeting today, they declined to offer any specifics. The state's right-to-shelter law guarantees shelter services for most families and pregnant individuals. The system has come under strain recently due to an influx of migrants and others in need of help. Governor Moore Healy wants to use a state surplus fund to help cover ballooning costs through part of next year. Officials on Cape Cod want to add more public fast-charging stations for electric vehicles. The devices can charge an EV's battery in 30 minutes compared to other chargers, which take hours. Barnstable County leaders recently signed off on a letter asking state and federal lawmakers to push for grants to pay for the expansion. Steve Tupper with the Cape Cod Commission says the Cape is behind the curve. So we're figuring out how to catch up to some other regions, but we have a lot of work to do on fast charging networks. We have strategies on how to do that, um, but certainly it's going to take a lot of folks to get behind it. A letter like this is a great step. The Cape has four public fast charging stations right now with 10 more on the way. It hopes to have triple that amount by the end of the decade. The forecast damp, windy, warm into the nighttime hours, maybe some rain and possible snow flurries after midnight, 28 degrees for a low. High winds keep on coming tonight and tomorrow, some gusts close to 50 miles an hour. Tomorrow, clouds should collect during the day, only reaching about 35 degrees tops. 55 in Boston at 507. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Some pilots of the Boeing 737 MAX jet resort to using Post-it notes to remind them of the workarounds that help them fly the planes. And aviation insiders are asking if the jets should even be flying. We'll have that story in a few minutes. First... In Michigan, a push to encourage voters to send President Biden a message about his refusal to call for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza, it may have worked. The group Listen to Michigan did not ask their followers to stay home from yesterday's Democratic primary. Instead, it asked them to vote for, quote, uncommitted. Statewide, just over 13 percent of voters did, taking a little of the shine off of President Biden's victory. To discuss the Michigan results and the campaign's direction going forward, we're going to bring in Mitch Landrew, national co-chair of the Biden campaign, former mayor of New Orleans. Mayor Landrew, welcome. Hey, how are you? Hey, I'm well, thank you. I want to say congratulations on winning the primary. And I want to I want to ask, how worried are you about this many people voting uncommitted? Well, first of all, the president got 80 percent last night on top of 96 percent, 90 percent in New Hampshire, and then, of course, in South Carolina, and then, of course, in Nevada. So the president continues to really hit it out of the park. A really, really, really strong night. Um, there's no doubt that uh, there were some, some folks in Michigan that wanted to send the president a message. He's received that message many, many times. He actually sent a team of high-ranking officials out to, of course, uh, Michigan to talk to folks about the very difficult issue that the president and the United States is confronting uh, in the war between Israel and Gaza. So that message has been received. The president actually thinks that people ought to voice their opinion. But last night he got 80 percent of the vote. Yeah, but uh, just to be clear, the the, 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 forgive me, but the 13 percent who voted uncommitted, that translates to more than 100,000 people. It's not a small number in a swing state that may well be tight in November. Well, let me say there's not, there, there is no small number in an election that's going to be, you know, razor thin close. So every vote matters, and the president understands that and knows that, um, and we'll continue to work on that and listen to what folks' folks's concerns are. Yeah. Uh, but as we move on, this election is going to be a choice between Donald Trump uh, and autocracy and oppressing people and revenge, and it's going to be about Joe Biden, who lifts people up and brings people together, creates lots of jobs, and so the contrast is going to be very, very stark. To, Every issue is complicated, and this is one of them that needs to be worked through. To this issue that was being raised by the Listen to Michigan people, uh, this is a group led by predominantly younger Arab American and Muslim organizers. How are you going to convince them, people who are very upset with the president's handling of the war in Gaza, how are you going to convince them to back him? Well, we're going to continue to talk to them. We're going to continue to listen to what it is that they have to say. When you're the commander-in-chief and when, in fact, you are representing the United States interest, there are no issues that are easy. And this is obviously a very painful issue for them and for lots of other folks in the United States of America. We're going to continue to talk to them and then ask them to think about the choices and what the consequences are about electing somebody who wants to have a Muslim ban, electing somebody who is going to be much, much worse than the difficult circumstances that we have right now. The president is going to reach out. We're going to continue to listen, and he's going to continue to work with them uh, as we find an answer to this very difficult problem. And what about younger voters? Um, the AP, their results show that the uncommitted vote in the county where the University of Michigan sits was higher than statewide. So more voters who may skew younger voting uncommitted. How are you going to engage those voters, people in their 20s and 30s? Well, there's no question about it. But listen, there are a lot of issues that affect young voters, not just this one. All these issues are intersectional. When you start talking about climate change, when you talk about the economy, when you talk about health care issues, when you talk about the right 
uh, to control your own body, to marry who you want. All of these issues will come into play. And remember, the question in November will be Trump versus Biden. Um, and, of course, when everybody's already seen what, what Donald Trump has done, he is going to govern in chaos. He's going to govern in revenge. He actually, by the way, had a much worse night last night than people expected him to. Remember, in South Carolina and in Michigan, he lost 30 and 40 percent of the vote, half to Nikki Haley, half of whom has said that they are open to voting for Joe Biden. So you really have to think through what the choices are going to be. And Joe Biden, as you know, he wakes up every day thinking about the American people. He tries to make everybody's life easier. We're building 46,000 projects uh, across America. We're actually reducing people's costs in their lives. Donald Trump right. is the exact opposite. Um, and just being a real anchor and is going to be really, 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 uh, you know, create a bad situation for the country if he's reelected again. And I think when the choice is before everybody in November, my guess is because the American people are really great they're going to choose Joe Biden and not Donald Trump. Since you are co-chair of the Biden campaign, let me put to you directly the question that many voters tell us is on their mind, which is the president's age. President Biden had his annual physical today. It showed very little change from last year. Hold on. I know you're going to tell me the concerns about his age are overblown, that he's sharp, that you're with him all the time. He's up to the job. My question is, what are voters missing that that is not the image that comes across? Well, wait a minute. If you know that that's what I'm going to say to you, and you know that it's true, why don't we gloss over it? The fact of the matter is the president... Not glossing over it. I'm asking why do voters not get what you're telling me. But but, but let's answer the direct question first. How fit is Joe Biden to be president of the United States? Very fit. His his physical today shows that he's strong as an ox. Um, The guy who's got a real challenge, who eats a lot more number ones from McDonald's than anybody else, is Donald Trump. And Joe Biden and I have been with him for two years, and I can personally attest to the fact, and by the way, you know, the no- numerical age is not nearly as important as the age of your ideas. Donald Trump's ideas are going to take us back 50 years to a time that they thought was better than today. But that my question was. again, my question ideas. again, why does that not come across to voters? Well, this is, well, first of all, we're just starting the campaign. And as we, as people see on TV, um, the things that Joe Biden has done and how he's acted and, and the consequences of his governance. Now, think about this. Joe Biden, in the first Three years of his administration created 15 million jobs. So I don't know what's more important, 81 or 15 million. Donald Trump lost 2.5 million jobs. Here's another number for you, 91. That's the number, that's okay. the number of criminal complaints that, that Donald Trump has against him. Joe Biden has zero. When you think about the numbers that matter to people's lives, that impact the way right. they live, Joe Biden is going to be the choice for most Americans. Mitch Landrew, we will leave it there. He's co-chair of the Biden campaign. We appreciate your time. Come back and talk to us again. Thank you, ma'am. Good talking to you. Boeing is on the clock. Regulators at the FAA said today the company has 90 days to come up with a plan to fix its quality control issues. Those problems came to light after a fuselage panel blew off a 737 MAX 9 jet in midair last month. Some of Boeing's critics say the 737 MAX shouldn't be flying at all, as NPR's Joel Rose reports. When pilots fly a Boeing 737 MAX jet, they sometimes take an unusual step because of a flaw with the system that prevents the plane's engines from icing up. Basically, if pilots leave the anti-icing system running for too long in dry conditions, it can cause problems, very big problems. If we leave it on um, more than five minutes, the engine could fail and come apart. That's pretty ominous. Captain Dennis Tager is a pilot for American Airlines and a spokesman for the union that represents its pilots. Here is how Tager reminds himself to turn that anti-icing system off. It's like old school stuff. I got out a post-it note, 
plastered it on the uh, dashboard so my eyes would see it along with the first officer. And I had engine anti-ice, five minutes is what I put on it, handwriting and a marker. In other words, Tager is flying one of the most sophisticated planes Boeing has ever made. And his workaround is a post-it note and a marker. To be clear, Tager says he can fly this plane safely. He does it all the time. But he's lost patience with Boeing. Right now, we don't trust him. It's, it's led us to ask, what else you got? Because every time something pops up, we learn that it has tangled roots deep down into the dysfunction of Boeing. Since Alaska Airlines Flight 1282, a lot of attention has been focused on the door plug that blew off the jet in midair. Federal investigators say four key bolts that were supposed to hold the door plug in place were missing when the plane left Boeing's factory. But the company's critics say the problems with the 737 MAX go much deeper than that. It's not a story about missing bolts. Ed Pearson is a former senior manager at Boeing. He tried to get management to halt production before two crashes of the 737 MAX 8 that killed 346 people because of what Pearson saw as problems in every stage of the plane's development. From the beginning to the end, it's been rushed. Design, certification, production, all of it has been a rush job from, from my vantage point. And when you're putting people under that kind of pressure, they make mistakes. Pearson is not at Boeing anymore. He now directs a watchdog group called the Foundation for Aviation Safety. Pearson says he's still hearing about some of the same problems at the factory, and he still won't fly on a 737 MAX jet. We're saying these planes need to be grounded because we're seeing all kinds of aircraft system malfunctions. New airplanes should not be having problems like this. Pearson is also worried about the design flaw in the MAX's engine anti-icing system. According to the FAA, Boeing discovered that problem after the MAX 8 and 9 were already flying. Last year, Boeing asked regulators for a two-year safety exemption and to speed up certification of two new models, the MAX 7 and MAX 10, even though they have the same design flaw. But Boeing eventually withdrew that request after the Alaska Airlines incident and now says it will focus on an engineering fix. Here's CEO Dave Calhoun on Boeing's earnings call in January. We will go slow to go fast. And we will encourage and reward employees for speaking up to slow things down if that's what's needed. The FAA has forced Boeing to slow down, capping production of the 737 MAX at 38 jets per month. And now regulators have given Boeing a deadline to come up with a plan to improve quality control within 90 days. Some Boeing critics are glad to see the FAA take a harder line with the plane maker. They can't even put bolts in. They haven't fixed their system. They need new management who truly focuses on safety and quality. Michael Stumo is the father of Samia Stumo, who died in a MAX crash in 2019. Stumo has heard promises about quality and safety from Boeing's leaders before, and he doesn't trust them. It sounds like they're changing just enough to remain the same. Nearly five years after his daughter was killed, Stumo is willing to fly, but not on a Boeing MAX jet. Joel Rose, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. The U.S. Supreme Court this afternoon said it will decide whether President Trump can be prosecuted on charges that he interfered in the 2020 election. The court says it will hear the case in April. The legal cases against Trump involving the last election cannot go forward until the Supreme Court decides. More on that story coming up here at 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Restaurants and Food Truck, 
helping you rev up your corporate and private events. Online booking available at lacuchara.com. And the Peabody Essex Museum, with Our Time on Earth, an immersive exhibition about creativity and our planet's future. On view now, PEM.org. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. The Dow dipped for a third straight day, although not too much, less than a tenth of a percent. S&P gave up almost two-tenths of a percent. The Nasdaq lost more than a half percent. Boston-based online furniture retailer Wayfair is planning to launch its first branded actual store this spring. CEO Naraj Shah says it will be in suburban Chicago and will feature a restaurant. The company runs a number of other stores, but none use the Wayfair name. It's 520. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's Winter Experience, celebrating the evolution of dance with two world premieres. On stage now through March 3rd. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. Coming up in 20 minutes, a new report documents the historic roots of slavery and systemic racism in Boston and tracks them to the enduring inequities of today, from housing to health care. The report and the remedies it recommends still to come. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow, today. More at iu.edu. From Fisher Investments, as a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investing in securities involves the risk of loss. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Barbie is up for eight Academy Awards this year, among them in the category of Best Original Song for Billie Eilish's What I Was Made For. But there's another song that will forevermore be linked to Barbie. I went to the doctor, I went to the mountains, I looked to the children, I drank from the fountains. You know it. That's the Indigo Girls. We were both like, Barbie? (laughs) They want to use Indigo Girls in a Barbie movie? (laughs) That's right. Closer to Fine. Their 1989 single is featured prominently in the Barbie movie, directed by Greta Gerwig. Closer to Fine! I'm coming with you. Okay. The Barbie release was such an exciting time for Amy Ray and Emily Saliers, the Indigo Girls, that last July we called them to talk about it. We caught Amy at home in Georgia, Emily on vacation in Europe. So I saw it in a theater where I couldn't even figure out how to order a popcorn, sat there in an assigned seat. We grabbed the last three tickets and couldn't sit together, my wife, my friend and I, and there were Danish subtitles. So it was completely surreal. And I knew that the song would be in the scene where Barbie's driving out of Barbie land and into the real world. And then Ken pops up in the back seat and shocks her and they're, they're singing this song. So I knew it was going to be in that scene, but it ended up being in three different scenes. So it was absolutely a total shock, first of all, to be seeing it premiering in that environment. And second of all, to have it appear that many times in the movie. And most of all, I loved 
the movie. I loved it. <laughs> Amy, where were you when you watched? Were you home in Georgia? Well, I have not seen it. I'm watching it on Thursday. I have a date with my partner, Carrie. We're actually going to take our child and her two dads are going. So it's going to be a double date with our nine-year-old to see the Barbie movie. You know, it's too fun to not go as a family. Yeah. I mean, just to just to give people a little bit of backdrop of why this is surreal, though there's a dissonance, I don't know what the right word is, but Barbie, we know, is this gorgeous blonde. She has a gorgeous blonde boyfriend, Ken. Um, they are, you know, the poster children for not just unreasonable beauty standards, but for heterosexual love. They're straight. And there's Barbie, and we see her belting out this song written and made famous by you two, um, poster children, if I can say it, for earnest lesbian folk singers. Is that fair? I mean, it's absolutely brilliant. How do you think about this? Well, I, I think that we, we did find out that Greta herself picked the song, and that was such an honor and, and felt really good to know that because both Amy and I appreciate and love her work so much. I think that when we found out we were asked to be any part of the Barbie movie, we knew that it had to be subversive in some way and and felt excited about watching that come to life on the screen. And I think after having seen the movie, I left, you know, my, my wife and my friend and I, we started talking about all the issues that were covered in the movie. In the end, it's very thought provoking. And they asked they ask questions about what it means to be human, to be who we are and what roles we get forced into being and and patriarchy and heteronormativity and all those things come to play in the movie. So having seen the movie, it's really no surprise in the end that she might have picked our song, even though it's a thrill of a lifetime. Amy, how about you? How are you thinking about this? I think of it as manna from heaven, <laughs> this late point in our career to have something like that happen with a director that's somebody we really respect. It's just... um flattering and an honor and for it to be part of a sort of an attempt to dismantle some of the notions around Barbie. I, I, you know, I've always felt like kids, they sort of take toys like that and they do what they want with them. I mean, like we used to play with Ken and Barbie and put Ken together with Ken and Barbie with Barbie. And I played with GI Joes. And, yeah. you know, for me, I always give credit to children for being able to just find their way through these things. I just think like, it's good to think about these things. And we're in a world right now where there's like this backlash against all the progress that the LGBTQ community has made. And it's great to have something in mainstream culture that sort of hints at all the subversiveness that we need to be thinking about because we're in, we're in the middle of a time when there's so much hate being thrown at people that are othered and this is just a great mainstream funny i mean what a great cast and just to be even a little part of it is for me is a moment i love that way of thinking about it because I mean, you're nodding at this but people have not always been kind. The Indigo Girls have been the punchline of jokes. Y'all were out and queer and open about it um, before that was anywhere near as mainstream as it is now. I was going to ask if this feels like revenge. It sounds more like redemption. Am I hearing that right? I mean, I, I would never say revenge. I would say validation. The song is the same song it was when it got recorded in 1988 and came out in 89. It's the same song. It's just the times that have changed and the evolution of thought that has shifted, even though Amy mentions the backlash, which is harsh. But same song, all these years later, 
not revenge, just a very interesting look at what happens with human beings. It's just kind of bizarre the way things shift and change. Well, and how great, you mentioned you have a nine-year-old daughter, Amy, who you're going to take with you to see this. How great to have a new generation of girls and hopefully their brothers and guy friends too walking around with this song stuck in their head the way I did <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a kid back in the 1980s. I mean, it's so sweet and the song is such a great song and a great sing-along. And, you know, this is the kind of thing where it's like, you hope generations, you know, pass it down to each other and and the community just expands because it's all about that. It's all about people sharing music and, and feeling good and joy and feeling good about themselves and just, you know, realizing life is a can be a beautiful thing and try to believe in yourself. Well, I never ask singers I'm interviewing to do this because I never want to put you all on the spot. Um, but if I kick off the refrain, would y'all join me and sing us out? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> How are you going to kick it off? Do you have a guitar? Please? I'm going to sing it to you, and then I, you're going to jump in and hopefully cover me up. Here we go. I went to the doctor. I went to the mountains. I looked to the children. I drank from the fountains. There's more than one answer to these questions. Pointing me in a crooked line. The less I seek my source for some definitive, closer I am fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah, that was Emily Sailors and Amy Ray, the Indigo Girls, talking to us about Closer to Fine. Thanks so much to you both. Thanks, Mary Louise. Thanks, Mary Louise. I went to the doctor. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. The wild winds are with us tonight into tomorrow. Some gusts tonight could reach nearly 50 miles an hour, so beware of downed branches or power lines when you head out tomorrow morning. Tonight should be rainy, lows about 28 degrees, maybe a few snow flurries overnight. Tomorrow, partly sunny skies in the morning, but then clouds blow black back in during the day. Again, a powerful wind tomorrow. Friday, lots of sunshine, high temperatures in the mid-40s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Don Foot Contracting, an integrated design building company committed to managing your entire home renovation project at House or Donfoot.com Beauty on Time. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, maestro Raphael Pichon, leads a fresh take on Beethoven's 9th, March 15th and 16th at Symphony Hall, HandelandHaydn.org. Scientists are cloning genetically modified pigs with organs designed to be transplanted into people. Every cell in the body of this animal has those same genetic modifications. NPR gets a first look into One Farm's operations tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. 
Congressional leaders say they have reached a deal to extend the current funding deadlines to avoid a partial government shutdown at midnight on Friday, but Congress still needs to pass a short-term resolution to extend the funding. In Alabama, families who've used or want to use in vitro fertilization to have babies gathered at a state house today to protest a recent court ruling from Troy Public Radio and Kinda reports. Major providers halted IVF treatments after this month's court ruling that said frozen embryos are extrauterine children under state law. On the lawn outside the Alabama State House, Birmingham resident Elizabeth Goldman said she wouldn't have her daughter without advanced fertility treatments. I can't remember what life looked like before her, so I would. I've been through a ton of hard things with uterus transplant and IVF, and honestly, like, I would do it a million times over again. Other patients told stories of taking on second jobs to afford IVF and are not sure what happens next. For NPR News, I'm Ann Kenda in Montgomery, Alabama. National Weather Service issued a blizzard warning for much of California's Sierra Nevada mountains. Kevin Stark says the storm is expected to start tomorrow and intensify into the weekend. What could be California's biggest snowstorm of the winter will also bring powerful winds that could cause power outages and dangerous travel conditions. The National Weather Service warns that the storm will also be capable of burying cars. People walking outside could quickly become disoriented. Andrew Schwartz leads the UC Berkeley Central Sierra Snow Lab. The reason that we're seeing a blizzard warning with this event is that winds are expected to be strong throughout the duration of the storm. The storm is primed to dump multiple feet of snow across the Sierra. For NPR News, I'm Kevin Stark in San Francisco. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. There's more talk on Beacon Hill of bringing congestion pricing to Boston roads. The policy would impose high tolls on people who drive into the city during peak commute times. Here's WBUR's Rob Lane. Boston City Councilor Tanya Fernandez-Anderson says congestion pricing could address some of the city's problems. Such a policy could reduce traffic, increase the use of public transit, and improve our air quality. That from a council meeting earlier this month. Congressman Jake Auchincloss declined to take a position on the matter during an appearance on WBUR's Radio Boston, but he's concerned that even if local leaders wanted to implement it, the Federal Highway Administration could block congestion pricing on interstate highways like 95 and 93. Massachusetts and Boston should be able to decide that for themselves without the Washington, D.C. telling them the best way to do it. Congestion pricing in New York City is set to go into effect this year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Dozens of homeless veterans in Massachusetts are getting help with permanent housing. A $1.1 million award from the federal government will help 65 veterans and their families find a place to live. Nationwide, the funding will help more than 1,400 veterans find a home. A state program that helps get pets spayed and neutered celebrated a major milestone today. The MSPCA says more than 20,000 pets have been fixed thanks to the Massachusetts Animal Fund's voucher program. The fund was created by the legislature in 2012. It runs on donations and some state funding. Carol Holmquist with the MSPCA says the program also provides veterinary care to pets owned by low-income families. It's an expensive time to live right now, and we want to make sure that financial barriers aren't what may separate a family from their pet. So this is one program that absolutely helps keep families together. Holmquist estimates every $1 spent on spaying and neutering saves communities $3 in shelter costs. The forecast is coming up.
WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare Advantage plans as low as $0 per month, new benefits for 2024, bluecrossma.com go, and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with Culinary and Pastry Certificate and Diploma programs for aspiring chefs, cambridgeculinary.com or on their app. Damp, windy, and warm tonight. Could have rain, maybe a little bit of snow after midnight. 28 for a low. High winds keep coming tonight and tomorrow. Some gusts close to 50 miles an hour. Increasing clouds tomorrow, only reaching 35 degrees. 55 in Boston at 535. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Capital One with the Capital One Quicksilver card. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From Mathnasium, who believes that every kid can be a math kid. Mathnasium offers customized math instruction intended to challenge advanced kids and help struggling kids get better. Learn more at mathnasium.com. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. President Biden got his annual physical exam today, and the results were mostly unchanged from last year's report, though the report did not address recent public concerns about the president's memory. There's a lot of scrutiny over this issue because of the president's age as he runs for a second term. NPR's Deepa Shivaram has been reviewing Biden's medical report. Hey, Deepa. Hey, Ari. What are the top lines from Biden's physical this year? Well, we heard from Biden himself earlier today before we even got the summary of his physical exam that the White House just released. And Biden said there was nothing different from his exam compared to last year. The president's doctor, Kevin O'Connor, wrote in his report that he had no new concerns about the president's health and that he continues to be fit for the office of the presidency. Dr. O'Connor wrote that Biden had a new over-the-counter medication introduced to his rotation for his acid reflux and that the president had a formal sleep study this past year and has been using a CPAP machine. This is like an air pressure mask that helps him breathe at night. Reporters actually picked up on this earlier this year. They noticed these imprints of the straps from the mask on the president's face one day. Biden also got x-rays on his spine, which has had some wear and tear and led to decreased range of motion for the president. So the doctor recommended more stretching in his physical therapy routine. And then there's the questions about the president's memory. The special counsel report earlier this month said he struggles with that. Did the report say anything about it? It didn't. The president did not have a cognitive test, even though there have been a lot of heightened concerns, as you said, about his age and his ability to do this job for another term. And that's something that voters have been worried about for a while, but it became even more of an issue earlier this month when that special counsel report came out. The White House and Biden himself have been really quick to push back on that narrative, right? But it remains a really big issue for voters. A recent NBC News poll showed that 76 percent of voters are concerned about the president's age, which means that White House Press Secretary Corinne Jean-Pierre was definitely prepared to answer questions about it in the briefing today. And she said that Dr. O'Connor and Biden's neurologist both said that Biden didn't need a cognitive test. The president passes, again, a cognitive test every day. If you look at what a clinical cognitive test is actually, what it actually does, it is a 15-minute appointment, and he is able to do the work uh, every day uh, that is more rigorous than it would be for any 15-minute clinical appointment. 
And she told us that there would be an explanation of why Biden didn't have a cognitive test in the report from O'Connor, but that doesn't appear to be included. This doesn't seem to be an issue that's likely to go away before November. And so how is Biden going to deal with this, given that so many voters say they're concerned about his age? Yeah. I mean, for starters, the president makes jokes about his age all the time. I was traveling with him through a fundraiser swing on the West Coast recently, and he was joking about how he personally knew Aristotle, which got a lot of laughs in the room. Even today, he said that doctors told him that he looked too young. But recently, he's been treating this issue of age like how he treats any other campaign issue by trying to draw a contrast with Trump. Earlier this week, he said Trump is about the same age as him, but his ideas and policies are stuck in the past. It is also worth mentioning, though, that Trump took a cognitive test when he was in the White House, though his administration never made the results of that test public. But that doesn't stop Trump from bragging about the results of his test and how well he says he did on it. And he keeps trying to make jabs at Biden, saying that Biden wouldn't be able to pass a cognitive test. So even though Biden's trying to shake off this narrative, Trump is likely to keep bringing it up. That's NPR's Deepa Shivaram. Thank you. Thank you. Today, the Supreme Court announced they will hear former President Trump's case, arguing he should be immune from criminal prosecution. We'll have more on that story elsewhere in the show. Meanwhile, in another case before the court, justices seemed conflicted today about a federal gun regulation that outlaws so-called bump stocks. These are devices that modify semi-automatic guns, converting them into weapons that fire as many as 600 bullets a minute. In 2018, the federal government banned them for that reason, but gun enthusiasts have challenged the regulation in court, contending that only Congress has the power to enact such a ban. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. Machine guns were developed by the military for battle in the late 1800s, but by the early 1920s, they became the weapon of choice for gangsters like Al Capone. In 1934, an alarmed Congress sought to prevent the ongoing terror on the streets and banned automatic weapons. Fast forward to 2017 when a single gunman using multiple guns that were modified by bump stocks killed 60 people and wounded 400 others at a Las Vegas concert, all in the space of 11 minutes. The carnage was so horrific that President Trump ordered the ATF to ban the sale and possession of bump stocks, devices that the ATF now says convert otherwise legal semi-automatic weapons into illegal machine guns. The heart of today's dispute is a highly technical question about how bump stocks work in practice. The government notes that Congress has banned machine guns and machine gun parts. The reason is that while a machine gun can fire hundreds of rounds per minute with just one pull of the trigger, semi-automatic weapons cannot do that, at least not without modifications like the bump stock. At the Supreme Court today, Justice Gorsuch questioned the notion that the ATF could just change its interpretation of the machine gun law in order to outlaw bump stocks. But Deputy Solicitor General Brian Fletcher pushed back, contending that the law was broadly written to allow for changes in the way that guns and gun devices are used. The ATF is saying we got that wrong before and we're fixing it now. Lawyer Jonathan Mitchell, representing those challenging the regulation, faced quite a grilling from liberals and conservatives alike. Here's Justice Kagan. The entire way this statute is written suggests that Congress was very aware that there could be uh, small adjustments of a weapon that could get around 
what Congress meant to prohibit. At some point, mm -hmm. you have to apply a little bit of common sense to the way you read a statute and understand that what this statute comprehends is a weapon that fires a multitude of shots with a single human action. Justice Kavanaugh observed that Congress, in writing the machine gun ban, did not draw the distinction the challenges are making between a machine gun and a semi-automatic weapon modified with a bump stock that facilitates rapid fire like a machine gun. Justice Thomas made a similar point to Mitchell. Why don't you simply then look backwards and say that the nature of the firing mechanism has changed, thus the nature of the trigger has changed. What's changed, though, is the rate of fire, and it's still one shot mm. per function of the trigger, even though those shots are coming out of the barrel a lot faster than they were before. Justice Alito, seeking to rescue Mitchell, posed this question. Can you imagine a legislator thinking, we should ban machine guns, but we should not ban bump stocks? Is there any reason why a legislator might reach that judgment? I think there is. Bump stocks can help people who have disabilities, who have problems with finger dexterity, people who have arthritis in their fingers. That answer seemed to gobsmack Justice Sotomayor. Why would even a person with arthritis, why would Congress think they needed to shoot 400 to seven or 800 rounds of ammunition under any circumstance? A decision in the case is expected by summer. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR. The organization Embrace Boston has released a report on the history of slavery and systemic racism in Boston and on how Boston can remedy the inequities black residents face to this day. Embrace Boston is the group behind the Embrace statue on Boston Common that pays tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife Coretta Scott King. Former Boston City Councilor and mayoral candidate Tito Jackson is co-chair of the board of Embrace Boston. He says Dr. and Mrs. King challenged us to identify and repair the harms of systemic racism. The Embrace Boston report names seven areas to target, including health, transportation, criminal legal systems, and an area where Jackson sees some of the greatest inequities, housing. So um, when we look at the built environment in the city of Boston, we can definitely think back. You know, many folks uh, were here during urban renewal. Some people used to call it urban removal. But we do need to note that Boston does rank among uh, the most gentrified cities in the United States of America. When, when you say urban removal, describe for those people who weren't in Boston when it happened, and this is in the 60s and 70s, what went on? What was removed? So if you ever go to Boston City Hall Plaza, people used to live there. That was Scully Square. If you ever go to where Mass General Hospital and the Boston Garden and that area of the city, um, that was a multiracial, multi-ethnic enclave in the city of Boston prior to the removal of uh, the people in, in the buildings. In addition, my family actually wanted to live in Chestnut Hill, and they actually picked out a home that cost less um, than the home that they ended up purchasing in Roxbury. And uh, the reason why they couldn't get the home in Chestnut Hill was something called redlining. 
which is actually what banks and actually people um, and political office and other uh, areas actually determined uh, how they determine where someone would get a loan, hence where they would live. Hence why the city of Boston looks the way that it looks demographically uh, today. And the report addresses reparations. And maybe you can describe exactly what they are, because it also takes pains to say that reparations are not just financial compensation. Where would, in your view, financial compensation be appropriate? And in what areas of harm that are ongoing would some other kind of reparation be appropriate? And what would it be? Yeah. So uh, as you know, the study notes, there is a component of financial compensation that would come from the government for those individuals who uh, are descendants of, of slaves that actually as we know, held folks back. Uh, But we have a lot of work to do in education, for example, um, that would be increasing funding um, and ensuring that it's equitable. Uh, making sure that our young people have wraparound uh, services and the social services that they need for them to be actually successful in our schools. And I think we have some also work to do in the area of the wealth gap and the the median net worth of uh, Black non-immigrant household is $8 and the median net worth of white households in Boston are $247,500. Tito Jackson, you have been working on some of these issues for a long time. They are all brought together in this particular report. What do you hope will come of it? I mean, do you expect it's going to move the needle? Do you expect and hope it will, I imagine you hope, but expect it will stop the harms that are going to be realized by future generations of Black residents of Boston? What do you think will come of all this? I hope that um, we will see this not as only an issue for Black folks in the city of Boston. So I I hope that it does definitely spark a conversation. I also hope uh, that we can get to a point where we agree that these harms exist and they're persistent and they're real. And then I would also hope that we would agree that we need to fix them. And I would say we all should be leaning into each other on these issues so that the city of Boston can be the best, most competitive, and actually most equitable city for all of its residents. And also that we stop losing Black residents because in the last decade or so, we've lost about uh, 5%. Tito Jackson, co-chair of the board of Embrace Boston, talking about a new report detailing the lasting legacy of slavery and systemic racism in the city. Tito, thank you very much. Thank you very much. WBUR supporters include Bentley University's nationally ranked MBA and master's programs in technology, finance, and analytics. Become an essential force in today's evolving marketplace. There's a wind advisor in effect until 7 tomorrow morning. Tonight we could have rain mixed with some snow flurries after midnight, down around 28 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine early, then increasing clouds through the day. Windy and colder, only about 35 for a high. Boston's North End is like a little slice of Europe. Walk through the winding brick and cobble streets and you'll find small Italian restaurants and historic family bakeries making cannoli. Here's a tip from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. There's three really popular spots to get cannoli in the North End. Bova's Bakery, Mike's Pastry, and Modern Pastry. These shops have been making cannoli for decades and they each put their own stamp on the classic treat. Mike's bakes traditional shells. Bovis specializes in Florentine cannoli shells, and Modern imports theirs from Italy. 
Locals and tourists alike have strong opinions about which shop makes the most delectable, crunchy, creamy treat. You may as well try them all to determine it for yourself, or maybe you'll discover an off-the-radar bakery that you can boast makes the best cannoli in the North End. To learn more about what makes Boston Boston, head to WBUR.org slash fieldguide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Each year, climate-driven disasters cause tens of billions of dollars of damage in the U.S., and those costs hit Americans directly in our wallets. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports on one group that can face unique and long-lasting financial strain after disasters, college students. When I started talking to people who were affected by disasters when they were in college, what immediately stuck out was how incredibly stressful it is. I feel like it was in survival mode, like you're just so high-strung and just like, Kid you not, I used to always be like, I don't know where my next meal is going to come from. I couldn't sleep very well. I was not doing very well in my classes. And then every time it rained, I just had a freak out. It's stressful because you were worried about home and you worried about how you're going to live uh, as far as working and transportation because all of that was lost. That's Mamifu Akumsan, Bethany Lee, and Joshua Johnson. They were all affected by a giant flood that hit the Baton Rouge, Louisiana area in 2016. The water damaged more than 100,000 homes just days before the fall semester began. And a lot of the stress they were feeling in the aftermath of that disaster was about money, which isn't surprising, says Vincent Corrales of the University of Houston. Most college students are already financially vulnerable. The financial loss piece to me is the most critical, and I study college affordability. College is barely affordable for anyone. A disaster can be the difference between affordable and not. Mame Kumsan was a sophomore at Louisiana State University when the 2016 flood happened. She had just moved into an honors dorm as an RA. I was like, I'm going to be the best RA to these freshmen and just, I mean, like, I did a SpongeBob theme haul. Like, it was There so wasn't funny. any water damage to the dorm where she lived, but her family's house outside Baton Rouge was destroyed. They lost everything, which put an extra burden on Mame. Because uh, I was trying to reduce how much I was spending from my financial aid so that I can give that to my family to help them recover. The family car had also been destroyed, so Mame was lending her car to her parents and using it to run errands for them, pick up her little sister, all while she also had classes and this full-time job as an RA. It was too much. You know, skipping class more, going home to check on them, using the car, and then I'm coming back on campus late. She ended up losing her job as an RA after just one semester, which meant she also lost her subsidized room and board and her income. All of a sudden, she had more bills and less money. She was scrimping, skipping meals, and it affected her grades. I was struggling really badly. I was a really strong student. I know I was always like, oh, I want to make the dean's list. And so that semester, I think that might have been the lowest GPA I ever had. And so... I was getting D's, I was failing tests, I was skipping projects, skipping class. That version of the type of student I was coming in and being strong and balancing everything was gone. In that first year or so after the flood, she says she felt like she was in survival mode. And Mame isn't alone. A recent study found that students whose families live in zip codes where there was a severe weather disaster got worse grades than their peers and ultimately were more likely to default on their student loans. 
Han Chia is an economist at the University of Texas at Dallas and an author of the study. He says college is an incredibly formative time, so a disaster can have cascading effects. That will have a spillover effect on pretty much every aspect of the person's life going forward, including their potential income, their employment opportunities, and their opportunities for job advancement, and eventually their finances. Another recent study found that students who are about to go to college when a disaster hits are less likely to enroll, period, potentially leading to lower long-term earnings. Taken together, the new studies suggest that extreme weather has lasting financial implications for college-age Americans, which is particularly concerning because climate change is making such weather more common. Some schools are reacting by finding ways to get money into the hands of students who are hit by disasters. For example, after Hurricane Harvey hit Houston in 2017, at least one major community college helped students right away, says researcher Vincent Corrales. They released financial aid earlier than they would have traditionally done so. And they made emergency funds available to students that were impacted by the hurricane. Other colleges and universities have used similar rapid response approaches after recent floods and wildfires. And those efforts complement slower-moving federal programs that allow students to delay student loan repayments or appeal their federal financial aid packages if they're hit by a disaster. The power of timely financial assistance for college students was on display after the devastating wildfire hit Lahaina last year. Louis Hokoana is the chancellor of the University of Hawaii Maui College. The fires took place on August 8th. By the 9th, we already knew that we had 200 students that lived in the affected zip codes in Lahaina. Almost half of those students had lost everything. They didn't have the computer. They didn't have the books they bought. They didn't have a permanent living situation. Hokoana says the school did a few things to help students right away. First, using a private grant, they deposited money directly into the accounts of affected students. They didn't make them fill out long applications or jump through hoops. They also kept the campus open longer hours as a safe space for students who had been displaced. And they adjusted curricula so that students could help with the fire recovery. For example, by preparing meals for their displaced neighbors through the culinary program. They had a need to be of service to their community. The college has only seen about a 20% drop in enrollment among affected students, which means most students are still showing up, despite the enormous barriers. The ultimate goal, Hokuana says, should be to help students not just survive after a disaster, but thrive and find meaning in whatever field they're pursuing. That's something Mame Kumsan in Baton Rouge thinks about a lot. Almost 10 years after the flood, she's been reflecting on its lasting effects on some of her biggest life decisions. It's so odd. It's one of those things you don't realize impacts you long term until you you really sit in it. When she started college, she was studying creative writing. I was ready to go and be a professor or just pursue being an author. And these are still things I aspire to do. She was accepted into a competitive creative writing master's program. But ultimately, she decided to pursue a graduate degree in business instead. She says she likes what she does, but it also makes her sad to think about her more creative dreams, which are still just that, dreams. I think that situation really did have an impact on how I viewed finances and money and do I want to change my career field to something that's maybe more lucrative or can give me guaranteed higher pay. 
so that I know that I'm always ready for any flood or a bad hurricane. Rebecca Hersher, NPR News. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Viking, dedicated to creating travel experiences for the thinking person, with programs designed for cultural enrichment on board and on shore. Learn more at viking.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at progressive.com. Not available in California or from all agents. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. Supreme Court says it will take on the case of whether Donald Trump is immune from being criminally charged for official acts he performed when he was president. The case and its consequences coming up. Today is Wednesday, February 28th, and you're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell will step down from his post in November. He's 82 years old and is the longest-serving Senate leader in history. We'll look at his legacy and what it'll mean for the Senate when he leaves the leadership. Landslides caused by driving rains have forced the iconic Wayfarers Chapel in Rancho Palos Verdes, California to close. Chapel leaders are raising money to begin repairs and refund canceled weddings. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Supreme Court is agreeing to hear a dispute about whether former President Donald Trump has absolute immunity from criminal prosecution for official actions he took in the White House. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the move means months of additional delay for Trump's trial in Washington. The justices say they'll schedule oral argument in the case about Trump's immunity the week of April 22nd. Until then, the criminal trial in Washington, D.C. will remain on hold, a victory for the former president and current candidate. Trump faces four felony charges for allegedly conspiring to defraud the government he once led and deprive millions of Americans of their right to have their votes counted in the 2020 election. 
Trump has pleaded not guilty. He calls the case from special counsel Jack Smith an interference in the current election, where Trump's the Republican frontrunner. Kerry Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Congressional leaders say they've reached a deal to extend the current funding deadline to avert a partial government shutdown that would have taken effect at midnight Friday. Congress will need to pass a short-term continuing resolution to extend the funding deadlines in order for Congress to execute the agreement. Covers six of the 12 regular appropriations bills. They plan to vote on those bills before March 8th. Remaining six bills will be extended through March 22nd. Idaho prison officials have called off the planned execution of one of the country's longest-serving death row inmates. NPR's Kirk Siegler reports the execution of serial killer Thomas Eugene Creech was stopped because a state medical team could not find an IV line in his vein. Thomas Eugene Creech was first sentenced to death here in the early 80s after being convicted for multiple murders in several western states and one later in an Idaho prison. With last-minute appeals rejected, the execution was scheduled and the process began in the morning, but according to a statement by the Idaho Department of Correction, the medical team determined they couldn't find a vein where they could establish an intravenous line to carry out the execution by lethal injection. Now, it's not yet clear what the state's next steps are, but Creech will not be executed immediately as death warrants expire within a matter of hours. His supporters at a recent rally said he was a reformed man and urged for his sentence to be changed to life in prison. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has announced today he will be stepping down in November. The 82nd-year-old Kentucky Republican, the longest-serving Senate leader in history, making the announcement on the Senate floor today. McConnell says he will stay on in the Senate after stepping down from leadership, though, serving out his term, which ends in January of 2027. McConnell's announcement comes on the heels of a string of health problems. He's also acknowledged his views on global leadership have put him out of step with those who now appear to be steering the course for the Republican party, including former President Donald Trump. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 23 points. The Nasdaq fell 87 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Appeals Court Judge Gabrielle Wolohogin will become the next justice on the state's highest court. The governor's counsel this afternoon appointed her to the Supreme Judicial Court by a vote of 6 to 1. In her confirmation hearing last week, Wolohogin faced questions about her past long-term relationship, romantic relationship, with Maura Healy before Healy became governor. Wolohogin is the second justice appointed to the court by Healy. Blue Hill Avenue in Boston is getting a major makeover. Today, Mayor Michelle Wu announced a $44 million plan to redesign the busy corridor. As WBR's Ninjor and Omeka report, the goal is to make the road safer for pedestrians, drivers, and bus passengers. The redesign's key feature will be a dedicated bus lane in the center of Blue Hill Ave. It will run three miles from Mattapan Square to Grove Hall. Mayor Wu says more than 37,000 bus riders use this corridor every weekday. We know it will make a huge impact to predictability and having more streamlined, efficient commutes for everyone who's trying to get around on this corridor and safer ones for all road users as well. The city will also repair the roadway, plant trees, and install new amenities like benches, bike parking, and public art. Some street work will begin this spring, but the bulk of construction won't happen until 2026, as the city still needs to finalize the design. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Greater Boston depends on child care and the workers who care for and teach young children. But as WBR's Max Larkin reports, a new study has identified a major problem that relatively few young people want to enter the field. 
Report authors found that in 2022, 55% of early educators in Boston were at least 45 years old. The study paints a picture of an undervalued, overworked, but essential line of work run overwhelmingly by women, and nearly half of workers are Latino. Report co-author Paula Gaviria works for the city's Office of Early Childhood. A significant portion of both center-based and family childcare educators are not only not making living wage, many of them might range in poverty wages. State education officials say they're stepping up grants to child care providers as well as scholarship programs for the curious. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. U.S. Senator Ed Markey is calling on the Federal Trade Commission to investigate how car manufacturers use data collected by their vehicles. Markey calls today's cars smartphones on wheels. He says that gives manufacturers high troves of valuable information on drivers and passengers from real-time locations to biometric information. Markey says companies can easily monetize this data by selling their customers' personal information. 55 degrees now, still warm out there, and it should be damp through the night tonight. Really windy overnight as well. Could have rain, maybe some snow showers after midnight. 28 degrees for a low. The high winds keep on coming tonight and tomorrow too. Some gusts close to 50 miles an hour. Then tomorrow, clouds should collect through the day. Temperatures only about 35 degrees tops. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation. For nearly a century, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. And the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The U.S. Supreme Court will hear arguments in April on whether former President Trump is immune from prosecution. The court's order this evening keeps Trump's prosecution in the January 6th case on hold. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg is here to explain. Hey, Nina. Hey there, Mary. Okay, so explain. What exactly has the court done here? The court said it will hear the Trump case on an expedition basis the week of April 22nd. And that means that the first trial charging Trump with election interference, which was originally scheduled for early March, is likely to be delayed until June if it takes place at all. So to state the obvious, this is a legal win for Trump, yes? Certainly in the short run it is. He doesn't have to face charges in March. On the other hand, if he loses in the Supreme Court, he could end up facing criminal charges during the summer or fall when he's campaigning for the presidency. Although I should also note that ultimately, if he's elected, he could just order the Justice Department to drop all the federal charges, but not the state charges, against him. Okay, so April, week of April 22nd, you said, and what precisely is the question the court is going to hear? The question is whether a president enjoys a lifetime shield from federal criminal charges for acts he took while in the White House. The Supreme Court has never decided that question. So I'm trying to think, of course, we know there are several other cases against Trump. How does this affect all of the cases outstanding? Well, Trump is facing in all 91 different criminal charges in four different jurisdictions. Two of them are federal. Both of those are on hold. The other one is the classified documents case. Um, But there are also state racketeering and conspiracy charges pending in uh, in Georgia. And um, and then there's the uh, 
Stormy Daniels case in New York that's right. also about to commence firing, I think. So there, though the state cases can go ahead, but the federal federal ones can't until this is decided. Okay, so those are almost certainly going to be delayed. Hey, Nina, you just said the court has never before weighed in on such a claim. Do we have any indication? Do we know where the court stands broadly on the issue of presidential immunity? Well, this court, which is a six to three conservative supermajority and has three nominees appointed by Trump is quite different from courts that have ruled on this kind of question before. President Richard Nixon was named an unindicted co-conspirator in the Watergate scandal that saw many of his highest-ranking aides go to prison. But after he resigned, he was pardoned by President Gerald Ford, so we never got to that question. So the question of presidential immunity uh, remains as it is. In 1974, the justices ruled unanimously that Nixon, then still in office, had to comply with the subpoena for 64 White House tape recordings that were subsequently used as evidence in the prosecution of many of his top administration officials. The Nixon tapes case thus became the leading precedent suggesting Mm -hmm. that presidents do not have complete immunity for acts that they commit while in office. And Piers Nina Totenberg, thank you. Thank you. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell announced on the Senate floor today that he will step down as Republican leader this November. One of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. McConnell is the longest serving Senate leader in history. He turned 82 just last week. NPR political correspondent Susan Davis is here to talk about his legacy and what comes next. Hey, Sue. Hey, Ari. Any sense of why McConnell chose this moment to announce he'd step down? You know, it's news, but it doesn't really come as a surprise. If you recall, at the beginning of this Congress, 10 Republicans voted against Mitch McConnell continuing to serve as leader, and they have since continued to publicly criticize him and call for new leadership. He's also had health issues dating back to last spring. At times, have kept him away from the Senate and raised a lot of questions about how much longer he could do this job. And now you have Donald Trump poised to be the likely nominee for the party again. And this is a presidential candidate that Mitch McConnell has been at odds with at many times in the past. McConnell said today he has many faults, but not understanding politics isn't one of them. One point of clarification, he's going to step down as leader in November after the election. But he did indicate he intends to keep serving out his term, which runs through 2026. Hmm. He became leader in 2007 and has been a towering figure in American politics since then. It's it's hard to sum up his legacy, but... What do you think will most define his time as leader? McConnell himself has talked about this, and he said he believes it'll be his role in shaping the courts, not just getting conservative justices on lower courts, but specifically that 2016 decision to block Merrick Garland's nomination by President Obama to the Supreme Court. That decision ultimately led to President Trump's ability to appoint three conservative justices and tilt the court towards conservatives. He has called that the single most important thing he did in office. You can draw a straight line from that decision to outcomes like the 2022 Supreme Court decision that threw out Roe v. Wade. And part of that legacy is also becoming is being someone who is seen as driving up the partisan divisions in the Senate. On the left, he's become one of the great boogeymen of American politics, not just for his approach to the courts, but also his long running opposition to any laws that would restrict money in politics. Uh, McConnell has always sort of relished being this boogeyman on the left, and he nodded to that today. I still have enough gas in my tank to thoroughly disappoint my critics. And I intend to do so with all the enthusiasm 
with which they become accustomed. So as he acknowledges there, he is no friend to the left. But in the last few years, he's also become a target of many on the right, specifically Trump and his supporters. Tell us about that. Sure. I mean, McConnell's not mega and he never will be. He personally doesn't like Donald Trump. Donald Trump clearly doesn't like him. Uh, over the years, he and Donald Trump have found themselves on the opposite sides of many Senate primary races in which McConnell has represented sort of the establishment wing and the Trump wing of the party. Many of the Trump wing candidates have lost and, and cost the Senate the majority time and time again. McConnell's brand of conservatism, frankly, is also on the decline. You know, he noted today that he's someone who got married on purpose on Ronald Reagan's birthday. He defines himself by that sort of Reagan era principles, and he loudly rejects a lot of the isolationist politics of the new right. In his speech today, he doubled down on that, saying American global leadership is essential for national security. And likely one of the big last tests for him as leader is whether Congress is going to be able to get a foreign aid package for Ukraine signed into law over objections about half of his own party. Well, he talked about next steps a bit, saying Republicans will have to elect a new leader after November's elections. Who's likely to run to succeed him? Uh, most likely it's going to be someone named John, is the joke <laughs> you hear about on Capitol Hill a lot. Uh, that would be John Thune of South Dakota, John Cornyn of Texas, and John Barrasso of Wyoming, all senators who have, are either currently serving in leadership or have in the past. If one or more, the, if more than one of them decides to run, it could be the first time there's a competitive Senate leadership election since the early 90s, and that one was on the Democratic side. Senate leadership elections usually happen by acclamation without much of a fight, but now looking at what could be a possible nine-month campaign for leader. But so much of this is going to depend on the election outcome. Does Donald Trump win? Does Donald Trump lose? Do Senate Republicans take the majority as they're projected to do, or do they not hold on to it? And the Trump factor here is significant. Who would he support? Who would he oppose for Senate leader could also weigh heavily. It's really unusual for a presidential candidate or a president to weigh in on congressional leadership elections. But Trump has done it time and time again. And we saw just last year when the speakership was vacated, he could play a really critical role in determining who leads the party, particularly if he wins the White House. That is NPR political correspondent Susan Davis on the exit of Mitch McConnell as the leader of Republicans in the Senate. Thanks, Sue. You're welcome. To a non-Washington story now, humpback whales have made a remarkable comeback. After being hunted close to extinction, their numbers have rebounded in the Pacific Ocean. But a new study finds the whales are now facing a different threat. Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk reports. For 30 years, Ted Cheeseman worked as a naturalist, guiding trips on boats around Antarctica. That meant looking for whales, which wasn't easy in the early 1990s. We saw very, very, very few whales. And in the 2000s, we started seeing more. 2010s, we started seeing quite a few whales. The whales were slowly recovering from industrial whaling, which lasted into the 1960s. I'm photographing this whales, seeing like, hey, you know, I'm essentially collecting data that could be valuable to science. Photos are key for scientists to identify and count whales. The tails of humpbacks each have their own unique pattern. And so you can look at them like we look at each other and recognize each other's faces. Whale scientists typically do that photo by photo, matching the tails in a painstaking process. But Cheeseman figured that artificial intelligence could do that more quickly. He started Happy Whale and pulled together around 200,000 images of humpback whales. Many were from scientists, but others were from whale watching groups, since anyone can upload a photo to find the exact whale they're looking at. In the North Pacific, we have identified almost every living whale. 
we were just doing this as a study of the population. We didn't expect to see a major impact of climate. But that's what he and colleagues found for one group of whales. Some humpbacks feed in Alaska in the summer and then spend winters in Hawaii. That group has declined 34 percent since 2013, a big setback. It happened when a marine heat wave hit, known as the blob. This very large body of warm water sat at the surface, stretching from Alaska to the coast of California. The warm water changed the entire food web, including the food humpbacks rely on. Marine heat waves are expected to get worse as the climate gets hotter. John Kalambakidis is a whale biologist at Cascadia Research and a co-author on the study with Cheeseman. I think the scary part of some of the changes we've seen in ocean conditions is the speed at which they're occurring. And that would put kind of long-lived, slow-reproducing species like humpback whales and other large whales as more vulnerable. Kalambakidi says the reason they could spot this decline is because humpbacks have recovered so well. For other whales, it's harder to see the impacts. I think it is important to think about what consequences could that be happening to these rare species where it's really hard to get data. But he's hopeful that new image recognition technology will help marine biologists spot these impacts faster in all whale species, especially given how fast the climate keeps changing. Lauren Summer, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is WBUR. There's a lot of talk about what to do with vacant office space around the country and whether it could be converted to much-needed housing. Tonight on 90.9 WBUR, what it actually takes and costs to turn offices into apartments. Business news starts at 6.30. The Dow dipped for a third straight day today. Not by much, though, less than a tenth of a percent. S&P gave up almost two-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq lost more than a half percent. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Leslie University. Make a difference as an artist, educator, or counselor with a degree from Leslie University. Get started today at leslie.edu. And Comcast Business, helping businesses go further with Internet and phone solutions designed to prepare them for the future. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it? To this station instead. We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Showers this evening, still pretty blowy out there. Got a wind advisory in effect until 7 tomorrow morning. Some gusts could reach between 35 and 50 miles an hour. Could have snow showers, showers mixed in with rain in the wee hours of tomorrow morning, then increasing clouds through the day tomorrow. Still windy and more seasonable temperatures in the mid-30s. Then sunshine is back for Friday. 55 degrees in Boston at 621. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from Jitasa, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. Jitasa is committed to serving nonprofits who make the world a better place. J-I-T-A-S-A.com. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older. NPRWineClub.org. This is NPR. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. After all the worry, all the preparation, congressional leaders have agreed on a plan to avoid a shutdown at the end of the day on Friday. But they're just buying themselves more time. The new plan kicks Friday's deadline to March 8th, so just one week. Congressional leaders say they are optimistic, but that conditions for making a political deal remain far from ideal. The Republican majority in the House is razor thin. Speaker Johnson can only lose two members of his party to pass bills with just Republican votes. NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel is on Capitol Hill following the talks. Hi, Eric. Hi, quiet day on the hill here. Quite a day on the hill. So what does this deal do? So technically speaking, there are 12 bills that fund the government. Congressional leaders now have a deal on six of them, and they plan to vote on those by next Friday rather than this Friday when the government was supposed to shut down or still technically is. The remaining six bills will be due in late March, March 22nd to be exact. But this isn't a leader-driven body exactly. They still need to pass the short-term funding extension to avoid the shutdown and eventually next week, the actual bills themselves. And I don't want to miss the forest for the trees here, right? All of this was supposed to be happening back in September. That's when the full year spending authorization for the federal government is due. You and I are sitting here talking it's February 28th. So in that way, right, like things aren't actually going great, even if the most catastrophic timeline isn't the one it looks like we'll be living in. Uh, Just to focus on something you just said, they still need to pass this. This is a deal that's been agreed by the leaders, but the House would actually have to pass it. Is that likely? I mean, I think so, but not with just Republican votes in the House, which historically is what you want to do if you're the party in power and Republicans, technically speaking, control the House. But there's a faction of House Republicans, maybe a third to a half of the party, who only want to pass government funding if it makes deep spending cuts and is approved alongside conservative policy wins on things like the border, immigration, and the like. So, like Speaker Johnson has on past bills, he's probably going to have to rely on Democratic support. In fact, past funding bills, these short-term extensions, have relied on more Democrats than Republicans total. And that's going to anger those folks in the party because of who, because of decisions made by his predecessor, have the power to fire him. It's important to remember that far-right members in the House are the ones who are out of step with the rest of Congress on this. Senators have been consistently making bipartisan efforts on spending, and even the emergency security spending bill that passed there earlier this month. Um, Okay, but this deal they've just agreed is a bipartisan deal. Should we be encouraged, Eric, to view this as a sign that bipartisanship is not dead? I mean, I will say that this is a bipartisan deal. That much is true. (laughs) Fact check true. Uh, But I think that's basically as far as I'm willing to take the statement, right? This is coming so late in the budget year, like five months in. It's a deal in principle about just part of the government. And more than bipartisanship, it doesn't really do anything to address the huge difference that has been haranguing Congress, basically paralyzing the House, which is the divide within the Republican conference itself. In fact, I don't really think that's in Speaker Johnson's power to fix. Yeah. I mean, just to note what it doesn't do, it doesn't include any mention of funding for Israel or Ukraine. It also doesn't appear to include anything to address the situation of the border with Mexico. Right. Those things that you mentioned were, of course, what congressional leaders talked about in their meeting with President Biden at the White House on Tuesday. And I think let's just say it. Congress probably isn't that great at doing two things at once. So until we get through these funding fights through March, that is, and past the State of the Union, Biden's address to Congress, which is next Thursday for those looking to mark their calendars, I just don't think we'll see action on something like Ukraine and Israel aid. It's another fight that's likely to split Speaker Johnson from his members. Though one notable thing that I think folks should be paying attention to, Hakeem Jeffries, he's the top Democrat in the House, said in an interview with the New York Times today that he thinks some Democrats might be willing 
to vote to keep Johnson in power if Republicans move to vacate him if he advances a vote on Ukraine aid, that is. That's a notable announcement. Though whether Speaker Johnson wants to put himself in a position where he needs help from Democrats, Mary Louise, I think that's a much different story. And PR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel, thanks so much. Thanks. For the past two winters, Southern California has gotten more than average rainfall. In Los Angeles County, that's led to unprecedented instability in an area known for landslides. There's been a tenfold increase in the number of feet the land has shifted compared with the year before. Mudslides are covering roads, buckling pavement, buckling trails, and destabilizing homes and other structures. As LAist's Yusra Farzan reports, that means one historic chapel is at risk of closing its doors for good. In the quiet town of Rancho Palos Verdes, south of L.A., roads wind along hillsides with a beautiful view of the Pacific Ocean. On one of them, you'll find the Wayfarer's Chapel. A geometric masterpiece of glass panels and wooden beams surrounded by redwood trees. But the ground around the chapel is getting more and more unstable. You'll notice uh, in the ground, cracks everywhere. And they basically run from the front of the chapel all the way back. That's Reverend Dan Burchett, the executive director of the 73-year-old chapel. Since the 1950s, the land here has been somewhat in motion as part of an active landslide complex. But due to the excessive rainfall this past two winters, says Burchett, it's gotten a lot worse. Fissures in the ground are around an arm deep, sidewalks bulge up, doors have shifted from their frames, and several panes of the glass walls are starting to crack and separate. Uh, you see a glass broken on the left above the altar, on the right above the altar. Uh, this one has a crack all the way across it. This chapel is an icon in Southern California. It was recently designated a National Historic Landmark. Built in the 1950s, it's a prime example of organic architecture, which was pioneered by Frank Lloyd Wright. His son, Lloyd Wright, was the one who actually designed the chapel. The idea behind organic architecture is that the building should be in harmony with its environment. Adrian Scott Fine, president of the Los Angeles Conservancy, says the glass walls of the Wayfarer's Chapel gives the illusion of being outside. It's almost this idea of it's just kind of sprouted there on its own, but it's very clearly um, something that was intentional, designed, and created. Since mid-February, however, the chapel has been closed because of the damage. That means people can't come to appreciate its architectural beauty. And also, no Sunday services, baptisms, or weddings. Pretty much my whole adult life, I always pictured getting married there. Naomi White booked the chapel for her wedding in July. Having grown up just 15 minutes away, she had her heart set on walking down the aisle at Wayfarer's. She says it's memorialized so many events in the community. It's special to so many people. And so I'm, you know, I'm not certain it can be saved, but I, I'm optimistic that like all of us are so invested personally in this monument. I mean, it really is a landmark. It really is such a, a major part of the city. So I'm hoping that with the right scientific resources and with the right like emotional, financial support, hopefully it can be saved. Church officials are currently fundraising to repair the grounds. After that, they say they'll turn to restoring the chapel itself. There's still no timeline set for its reopening. For NPR News, I'm Yusra Farzan in Rancho Palos Verdes.
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. At spring training in Florida today, the Red Sox fell to the Washington Nationals 4-3. to Bruins and Celtics have the night off tonight. The Bees play at the Garden tomorrow. Celts get back to work on Friday. It's 6.30. WBUR supporters include Maplewood Country Day Camp, where generations have experienced the joys of summer, daily swim lessons in heated pools, and A.C. for indoors. MaplewoodYearRound.com.